This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 511 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 511tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 511 Tactical, You can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by GovX. And as you know, I only have companies on here that I truly use and believe in myself. And GovX is a complete no-brainer. If you are a member of fire, police, EMS, corrections, military, and even hospital setting doctors and nurses, you qualify for the free membership to GovX, which marries us with discounts from so many companies that you probably already use. And on top of that, it's not just for active duty, but also retirees, veterans, and volunteers. So for our professions, having to purchase so much of our equipment, every single dollar counts. And understanding that, GovX has reached out to you, the Behind the Shield podcast audience, to offer you an additional saving. On your first purchase of $50 or more, if you use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, they will give you an additional $15 off your first purchase. And another layer of GovX is GovX Gives Back. Every month, they're going to sell a different patch, and the proceeds from that patch goes to a charity that supports either first responders or military. So as I mentioned before, go to GovX.com, G-O-V-X.com, Register for your free membership and save every single time you purchase. Welcome to episode 408 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Matty Fiorenza and Jared Chiselski. So this is a very unusual conversation because we actually sat down together in California for the first couple of hours where I sat and listened to Matty's deep and powerful story and Jared, who then was about to go to the Save a Warrior program. So the first part, as you will hear, is pre-Save a Warrior. Then after Jared had gone through that program, we sat down a few weeks later and had time to really digest what he'd been through, and we did another entire conversation post-Save a Warrior. So you have a really interesting insight into a person who was in crisis, went to Save a Warrior, and is now a mentor in that program. And Matty and I actually worked together, so I knew him before. I knew him when he was in crisis, and then I saw him after. And then you have Jared, who in that prior conversation is literally in crisis at that moment. And then you hear the incredible aha moments that he had, the 
the tools that empowered him to start his journey of growth out of the darkness on his own path. So such a powerful conversation. I could have chopped this up into two episodes, but I didn't want to. I wanted it to run as one so that you really get drawn down this path and there's no interruptions, no commercials, no part two, none of that. Just prior and post. So a really, really powerful story. I urge you to listen from beginning to end. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, the audience. So all I ask in return is that you help share these episodes so I can get them to every other person on planet Earth that needs to hear them. So that being said, I introduce to you Matt Fiorenza and Jared Chazelski. Enjoy. I'm sitting here with Matty and Jared. Um, let's start with the very beginning. Where are we sitting today? Let's see. Um, we are sitting in the beautiful city of Newport Beach, California, in Southern California, in um, a premier treatment facility uh, for first responders and first responders only, called uh, First Responder Wellness by Simple Recovery. Beautiful. And Jared, what brought you here today? Uh, well, I've known Matty for a little while, and... Um, Really what brought me right here today is <laughs> just my journey on where I started and how I'm in this seat right now. Beautiful. Well, let's, let's begin that journey then. Um, so I'll go back and forth. Uh, let's start with you, Matty. Um, tell me about where you were born and then family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay. Um, I was born in Riverside, California um, to a... Uh, Vietnam vet, Marine, uh, Orange County Sheriff, uh, Sergeant, Medal of Valor winner, um, and a stay-at-home mom, uh, Irish, Italian, Catholic family. Um, And let's see, my mom, my dad left when I was three months old. My mom remarried to my stepdad, who um, was also a Korea vet. Uh, he was in the army and a hardworking guy who adopted me. Um, and he, my mom, um, from my real, my first dad, my real dad had, um, my sister who's eight years older than me. Um, and then with my stepdad, my mom had my little brother, Dominic, who, uh, who's a Hemet firefighter. I like to say he done, he's done everything I've done in life, but better. Uh, he's an engineer on the hazmat team. And, and so, um, that was kind of, um, to, to start off with, that was essentially just the, that's the, the core. Um, it got a little squirrely from there. Um, and if, I don't think we have enough time in the podcast to talk about the third marriage and the, and those kids and all those kids, but I have a lot of stepbrothers and sisters. I'll just say that. So, Beautiful. Yeah. Well, I know, you know, obviously we're talking about, uh, paths of trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and as we discussed before we were recording, we got some food. The the childhood trauma element, the pre-profession baggage that we carry in, you know, is something that seems to be a recurring theme and something that's not really recognized in our profession. So for you, when you look back at those times, 
were there elements of trauma, you know, with having a veteran as a father? And then, and then what about your own personal early trauma? Yeah. Um, so, of course, like, you know, and I like to I like to start off these conversations um, by saying, you know, my my parents did the best they could with what they had at the time. And and getting caught up as as a teenager and as a kid, I obviously like, you know, your parents are God when you're little. And so um, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't there and it's taken me a long time to get there. And I know um, I have a great relationship with my mom today. Um, my dad's passed. Um, my stepdad's passed. And, um, and so, and they, they listen, you know, my mom listens. And so I li- always like to start off by saying that because we have a great relationship today. So, but it, um, you know, my dad left when I was three months old. Um, we, from a very, very young age, I heard things like, you know, your all your dad ever wanted was a boy. And as soon as he had one, he left us. Um, he's an alcoholic. He's a womanizer. He's, you know, he left us. He, he'd rather be with these women. I mean, I'm talking, I'm a little boy. These are some of my, my first memories, you know? Um, so when, um, the, the first, they weren't all bad, but a lot of my memories of my dad are scary. You know, he was, he was touched with post-traumatic stress. You know, he was in Vietnam. He actually was in a shooting um, in Silverado Canyon where he got his Medal of Valor and, and, th- and that got him off work for a little while. So um, so the times that I did see him, um, I, I, I give this example. Um, he, most kids, when they go out in the garage to work or wrench on a car with their dad, that's like awesome, you know, a fun thing to do. And I remember going out there and him throwing tools and cussing and me just being petrified. You know, I was just, um, I wanted to connect with him, you know, but I just, I just didn't know how, you know, and he slept a lot. Uh, he worked nights mostly. And so I was like spending time with the women that he was dating at the time and eventually my, my, uh, stepmom. So, um, that's kind of how that went. Um, when I was, I can't, I can't remember exactly what birthday it was, but my dad showed up my, at my house, um, to give me a birthday present and ended up getting into it with my mom, injuring her and, and right in front of me. And, um, and then I didn't see him again until I was older, um, because he lost custody of my sister and I. Um, so after that, um, I lived, uh, my stepdad was a, a general contractor and he was a hardworking guy and he, but we moved around a lot and we lived in some pretty, um, some pretty rough neighborhoods in Southern California. You know, um, I'm a blue eyed blonde haired kid and in some of the neighbors, I correction, blue eyed, gray haired yeah. kid. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Bro, some of that. Thanks for pointing that out. Yeah. So, well, it, there's some hard earned gray hairs, bro. Um, but yeah, I, 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 it was hard to get my bike home sometimes. So I, I had to fight to get home and, and, um, and I put on this, you know, um, this ego that, you know, this athlete warrior that served me when I was little and and it was, it was to be a bully and to, you know, I'm going to get you before you get me. And, um, uh, I was, we were living in, in a certain, in a neighborhood where, uh, um, there was a 15 year old boy that lived next door that was molesting me, um, stuffing hustler magazines down my pants 
when I didn't even, I mean, I, I didn't know what I was looking at, looking at, but I know when I looked at it, I felt good. And I wasn't thinking about the fighting that was going on inside the house. Cause my mom and my stepdad fought a lot. And, you know, my little brother and I just in bed at night with the covers over our head, listening to these arguments escalate, you know? Um, so, you know, and, and what I learned, um, from some of my mentors is that we're little meaning making machines. And, and what I started telling myself with, you know, the first thing is like something here is wrong. Right. And that I equate that as a little kid to I'm defective. Something's wrong with me, you know? And then it's like, um, um, I'm alone. No one else has this going on in their house. Um, and, um, and I'm helpless. There's nothing I can do. You know, I got I got to go and come up with these with these traits, um, and 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 keep feeding this ego because I have to eat. You know, um, and having a mom who was all over the place and and um, it was just never knowing when she came home what kind of mood she was going to be in because she had to go off to work. I was a latchkey kid, um, and then you know that's I mean that's mostly the trauma. My, my grandparents were my angels, like absolutely like paid for Catholic school, helped my parents pay for Catholic school, um, which is a little scary in itself, you know, but we didn't, because we moved around so much, I didn't have to move schools a bunch. So that was kind of nice that, you know, I, I was introduced to my higher power, um, during that time. Like my, my grandfather passed away when I was very young, um, when I was 15 and, and we were super close. And, and so, um, you know, uh, as far as trauma goes, that's, that's, that's the gist of it. I mean, there was story after story after story. I lived in motels sometimes. Um, uh, I just, I had to fend for myself at a young age and then somehow take, um, responsibility for my brother a little bit because my sister was eight years older. She was always off. So after, um, uh, I was about 13 years old. Um, my, my winning formula was to be an athlete, so I played, I was on the football team, you know, and it's like, and when I say that, I mean, we, we put on this uniform or part of this team, because if, if, you know, if I can do all this and play this sport and be good at it, then people won't know what's going on inside here. Cause if they, if they knew they kicked me out of the tribe and they'd hate me. And, and so, and that was my winning formula until, um, I went to an all boys Catholic high school for, uh, for a year. Um, and I was kicked off the football team. I lost my position to a kid whose parents bought the school a bus and my parents were struggling to pay the tuition. And after that, it was just, it was, I was struggling with my mom's third husband. Um, there was a lot of abuse going on in the house. And at 13 years old, I was like, I'm out of here. I told my sister, um, I'm running away. I'm, I'm tired of, of, you know, mom and so-and-so coming home drunk, you know, pushing me around, um, breaking up arguments, like, this I'm 15 years old. I'm supposed to be, you know, doing dot, dot, dot. And this is my life when I come home, you know? And so, um, so I ran away, uh, I ran away from home, um, at about 14 years old and my sister took me in her and her husband. So, um, my high school years were, I really spent just doing whatever I wanted. And that's where I kind of, you know, I, I got introduced to alcohol and drugs and, um, and I know that, when the, that alcohol went in, um, I had friends, I was comfortable in my own skin. I had a place to go and, you know, and it just added to, you know, a lot of years of just, um, self-abuse really, you know, up until I decided to, to, uh, do something with my life and join the fire service. So that's pretty much in a nutshell, <laughs> 
a long uh, answer to the uh, trauma question, but um, but like I said, I uh, you know as we get further along in the conversation, um, once I decided to to go into the fire service and I had this goal of of being a firefighter and and um, I I thought I just thought that that stuff was all behind me and it would it would just go away you know and um and obviously I learned later in life that that stuff makes its way to the top when you you know essentially for for the first resp- first responders and veterans that are suicidal the it's complex pts and that's childhood trauma plus moral injury and that equals complex PTS for the for the patient population of first responders and veterans that are suicidal. That's the problem. Yeah. Well, just before we switch over to Jared, what about um, like uh, occupational dreams? What 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 were you hoping to be when you were in that that high school age when you left? So you know, I that's a great question because as much as I like hated my dad for leaving us, and he's out there saving the world, um, I still wanted to be like him. funny how some of this stuff (laughs) um so at 15 years old i joined the explorer scouts for the san bernardino county sheriff's department but um and it's you know i i gotta be completely transparent when i when we have these talks you know so i was smoking a lot of weed those days and and showing up in a cop uniform (laughs) in a sheriff (laughs) uniform you know, after smoking weed with your buddies to, to organize, um, mug shots <laughs> is not really, Oh, this is know. me. I'm going to get rid of this one. <laughs> <laughs> totally. So I just, I choose, I chose that, you know, but there was parts of me that, I mean, we're called to do this, you know, and it's in the, fa- it's the family business and it's in the blood. And so, I mean, I just, I wanted to be of service. So I did that for a little while. Obviously I quit that. And, and then I, it was about, you know, I, I remember watching all the Vietnam movies, watching platoon, watching, um, full metal jacket, watching, you know, playing army as a kid, you know, just being like, I'm going to, I'm going to join the military someday, or I'm going to be a cop, you know? And, um, and then it just, the being a teenager and, and, and then kind of separating myself from that, um, and going the the other direction, hanging out with Hell's Angels, hanging out with bad guys, looking up to tattooed thugs, you know. And and I thought, okay, this is my crowd, you know. I I was a singer in a punk rock band for a little while, which is hilarious. Um, and and I ran with that crowd for a little while until I met um, until I met my uh, I came this close to joining the Marine Corps, and um, and backed out. And then I met my I met her. You know, and her mom worked for the Forest Service. Her name's Shannon, and and she was always talking about base camp and fire camp and firefighters. And I wanted to, I wanted to like be with this woman, and I knew that I had to get my act together. Um, and so I was like, the fire service, like, where has this been my whole life? Like, I never thought about this. Like, this was like backdraft, the movie, you know. And I just, I don't know why I never thought of it. And and then it was just like, you know, I she. Um, she worked uh, a big fire, a big campaign fire up in, um, up in like, I think it was at like uh, Fort Hunter Leggett. And she came down talking about these, these King City volunteer firefighters. And so she became friends with a few of them. We went up there, we did a barbecue at the fire station. These guys were fucking salted. The earth. Oh, can I? Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Have you All not right. heard one before? <laughs> <That's right. laughs> I'm but, usually the worst, worst offender. So. <laughs> Maddie drops the first F-bomb. <laughs> um, no, these guys are just salted the earth. 
like just salty, crusty, you know, just doing it for free, bro. Like what? And I remember sitting doing a barbecue and they let me like hose down the, the patio. And, and I just remember sitting in the fire engine, like for like an hour and a half, bro, going, this is, this is what I want to do. Like, this is it, you know? So, um, yeah, I, I mean, it, it was always in me. It was always in me. And, and then when I discovered the fire service, it was like, boom. And then I signed up for a, um, I was in a four-year college. I've done everything like backwards. I was going to a four-year school and I dropped out of the four-year school to go to the two-year school to take the fire science classes. And, um, and I ended up, you know, I remember Chief Bruce Stedman from the uh, Alhambra Fire Department coming. He taught 101 at Mount Sac. He came in, dropped a video in like a VHS tape of the <laughs> men and women, yeah, men and women doing the job. And, and I was like, this is it, you know? And it took me, it took me a long time. It took me about five years because I had a mortgage out of I had a wife at home, um, I had bills to pay and I was, I'd go work all day. I worked at an engineering company in San Dimas, California. And, and I would, you know, I would, I would take one class or two classes a semester. So I'd work all day and then I'd go to the, uh, I'd go to the gym and work out. And then I would, I'd go to these classes and I aced the classes. Like it was so interesting to learn about, like finally sit in a classroom and actually learn about something you fucking gave a shit yeah, about. It pertains you know? to real life. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So and, um, and after, after, I think it took me about five years from beginning to end five to six years, you know, and when I speak, I tell people, you know, you know what they call people that, that, you know, go to school for five to six years, doctors, you know, <laughs> but you know, volunteering, you know, being in the fire tech club, volunteering here and there doing station visits, you know, I, everything you have to do to get the job. Like, and, and I, I like to say, when I talk about this particular subject is that I, and I'm, I, God bless our veterans and I love them. And I, and I love that they have what they need when they leave. But for a, for a guy who puts his eggs in all the first responder basket, when you get five years in and decide, man, this isn't for me, this is what guys do. Yeah. They want to blow their heads off instead of asking for help or just saying, this is, this isn't for me and leaving. And, and we get those golden handcuffs and, and so, you know, cause the novelty of the job wears off real quick, you know? So, and, and you don't know what it's like until you're standing there and it, and we don't just let anybody, right. We'll, we'll let you do a ride along or two, but how many times do you, we get the ride along curse. Yeah. Exactly. How many times are you on a ride along where you actually get to see something cool, which is horrible. Right. Um, but at least gives you a snapshot to what you're actually going to be immersing yourself. Exactly. In. And it's no longer the stuff you're looking at in the books, yeah. you know, it's like, no, this is real. And no one should have to look at this shit, you know, so. Beautiful. Well, we'll, we'll take that from, you know, go to the next step in a moment. But so starting with you, Jared, beginning again. So where were you born? And tell me what your parents did. How many siblings? Um, I was born in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, my mother's from San Diego and met a Navy corpsman in the late 60s. He shipped off to Vietnam Came back, grabbed my mom, headed to Kansas City. Eight months later or so, I was born. So <clears throat> I don't really know much of him. Um, uh, my mom left him when he was 18. He was super abusive uh, to both her and I, from what my mom tells me. Um, I did have an opportunity when I was about six years old to go back. And this is the only memory that I have of my biological father. 
um, went back and he had this house, a family, three daughters. It's like, what the fuck? What about me? You know, he had ditched us and created this whole family. And that's the feeling now looking back on, on anger, frustration. Um, I spent a lot of time with my grandfather back there in Kansas city. Um, that was the last time I had contact with him until I was 26 years old. And so uh, my mom uh, spent a couple of years uh, living uh, in Pacific Beach by herself. She met another Navy guy, Vietnam vet. He had come back and uh, they got married pretty quick. And he had a son already from an abusive relationship. Um, my stepbrother, Paul, was actually in Child Protective Services when my mom and dad got married and soon after he got full custody. So we had my younger brother, Paul, who's 19 months younger than myself. Um, <clears throat> we lived in a little beach community, Pacific beach in San Diego. And then later as, uh, I got older when I was about seven, eight years old, they actually bought a house in the next community, which was just up a little bit, about four or five miles away called Claremont. Um, San Diego, not Claremont, LA. Mm -hmm. and, <laughs> Florida, we have one too. <laughs> yeah, I think every state might have uh, Claremont. And so, and that's where I pretty much stayed until the time I left. My parents, my dad in the Navy did a 28 year stint uh, in the Navy. He was, uh, worked on diesel boats for a long time, then became a Navy diver with the deep submerged rescue vehicle, which is a special operations vehicle. Um, and, uh, and then they brought in when I was 10, brought in a Native American boy, um, uh, Daryl, who then became my third brother. He was younger than Paul by younger than me by two and a half years and younger than Paul by a year. And so us three, uh, we lived in a little 10 by 10 bedroom with uh, submarine bunk beds built out of the two closets uh, that my dad built in there. But um, uh, I, it was uh, very violent um, home, uh, looking on the outside, lawn was mowed, house was painted. Um, my dad deployed a lot growing up. Um, and when he was home, he was angry. Um, uh, and my mother running, you know, raising three boys. And another thing too, I was, you know, I always wondered why they always had to have somebody else. Like we always rented out, there's three bedrooms in the house, but we lived in one, my parents, the other, and they always rented out the other bedroom. It's just really random. Um, and, uh, just really hostile. Um, sometimes I felt, I refer to it now when I talk to my wife about, it, I felt like a POW, you know, locked in my room for months at a time only to let out to do physical labor or schoolwork, go to school. Um, beatings more than just like a spanking, like, um, and they were just regular. I thought, this is how you grew up with, you know, getting beat with a wiffle ball bat and told not to take off your clothes at school to change for PE because they'd see the bruises and welts on your body. I just thought that was normal shit. You know, um, when I was seven years old, um, I was molested for the first time by a, um, a kid down the street who was 12 at the time, but fairly large. Um, and, uh, but I didn't really know how to handle that at all. Um, he was going after my little brothers and I got into it with them and ended up t getting it. Um, and that kind of pursued with 
threaten, I'm going to kill you if you tell your parents kind of thing. And, and it just, that, that lasted for about three years back and forth with him, um, and another girl on the street that became into that circle. Um, and, uh, I became a very angry young man. Um, I still to this day have struggles reading. I have dyslexia. If you guys know what that is, it's a, it's a, I see letters a little bit backwards and don't really comprehend what I read all that much. So like reading your books, like three, three times per paragraph, but I get it. I understand it. it's something that I live with and process it, but, um, I didn't really know about it. I didn't understand why I couldn't read, why it's just a lot going on at a young age. And, um, like what mass is a lot of fighting, um, just, I think now looking back on it is just built up frustration, anger. Um, <clears throat> the last time I remember taking a beating from my dad, a pretty good one, um, holes in the walls, face into the thing, you know, drywall, lots of punching and kicking both sides. Um, and I remember running into his bedroom and I know where he keeps his weapon, his pistol under the mattress and a knife in the side of the bed. And I, first thing I could get to was this nice buck knife. And as he came at me, I tried to stab him. And I says, you touch me again. I'm gonna fucking kill you. And he stopped dead in his tracks. And I remember the look that him and I had just looking there and he never laid a finger on me or my brothers since that day. And how old were you when that incident happened? I was 16. 16. Okay. And so it just went on, you know, um, and my mother was so frustrated with my dad being gone and us boys being frustrated and running shot that she was super violent towards us also. Um, and it just, her frustration, like what Matt said, you know, um, I understand now what post-traumatic stress. Can do to you. Um, and then compound that with three kids from different relationships. Um, my mother addicted to abuse. Um, I don't know if my father, my stepfather ever laid a hand on her, more emotional. Um, and he was so sick that uh, some Mormon missionaries knocked on the door one day and he jumped into that full swing and forced everybody to follow him into that religious oh it worked the door-to-door thing worked in that particular case <laughs> well i think he just <laughs> saw something clicked in him that he could hide in it looking at it now um and then for me it was like oh and then for it, it was it was like the heavy hand of religion coming down on us um and for me, I'm thinking like, oh, Jesus makes you do that shit. Well, I don't want fucking nothing to do with that guy. You know, there's a God. I mean, I lost faith in any sort of God at an early age. Um, and I tried hard to do it. Um, I later pursued trying to do the missionary thing just to find a find something. Didn't work out. Um, and so that kind of went on at 16. I left home. Um Went and stayed with a friend for a few months. I eventually came back to the house and just cohabitated um, with my family. That's what I call it, cohabitated. Um, as, at 18, I signed by the dotted line. Uh, 
the army recruiter and enlisted in the army. Um, went to night school a few years to try to make up classes to graduate high school. So that was pretty, um, pretty weird in itself, but, uh, I was glad I did it. Uh, my parents forced me to do it. And so I was glad that that's one of the things that I'm glad that they forced me to do was finish my high school education. Um, you know, uh, my stepbrother Daryl's dead now due to drug overdose. Um, my brother, Paul, uh, he's successful. Um, has been married to the same woman, but they live a very hard life with alcohol. Um, I, I would call it high functioning. Um, I, I, and, and now my brother is like really focused on his health, which is really good. Um, finally, you know, but, uh, all three of us came from that family all have severe dysfunctions. Um, well, I would say it was expected functions. You know, that's the thing. It's, it's a ripple effect. So, yeah. you know, I mean, yeah, it, it, dysfunction is the right word, but when we look at it, it's causational. Yeah. You know, and, and, uh, the interesting thing, um, that when I look back on it now, and we'll get into the other conversation here in a little bit, um, you know, I, I served in the military, um, and then I did a year in Iraq during the first Gulf War, um, deployed into Iraq on February 24th when we did the ground invasion uh, with the 101st Airborne, um, uh, came out of that and came back home. And it was almost like, what next? You know, um, you're part of something pretty huge. It must've been quite jarring to come back and just be screeched to a halt again. It was, it, and that's exactly what it felt like. Um, I'm, I, I am honestly can't believe I survived any of that first 21 years of my life. Um, and to be able to continue to function, have a job, raise a family, um, and we'll get into that whole mess <laughs> down yeah. the, a little later. But, Me too, brother. But mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so uh, my father and mother, or my stepfather and my biological mother are still married. Um, his dealing with PTSD is decided to barricade himself in Montana about 25 years ago, which um, that's where they live now. And uh, as we know, Alaska and Montana are full of Vietnam veterans hiding. Um, and so... Um, he never turned to alcohol or drugs. His his addiction was religion and uh, that heavy hand. So um, I, I had my bouts with drugs and alcohol throughout the year, but I, throughout the years. But that that really for me wasn't like hiding place. For me, my hiding place was in anger. Was to protect those who couldn't protect themselves. I was constantly fighting and expelled from different schools for going after the kid who tripped the kid. Not, not, not picking on the little guy, but you, you tripped that kid and I'm going to fuck you up, you know? Uh, and it was constant and, and it never ceased to end. And I got in a lot of trouble at home for it. You know, I took beatings after beating, mm, you know, after because it's just like this cycle, but, but that's where I hid. When I went into the military, like we were saying earlier, I hid in that anger. Like military to me was easy. Like it was like, fuck yeah, nobody's beating me now. 
Okay, here we go. Paid to kill people, <laughs> right? Basically, I mean, yeah, you, you you're going to channel the anger you want. Yeah, 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 and 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 then you're going to send me off to do it. Okay, let's go. I'm down. Let's roll. And uh, and then getting out, I just constantly was fighting, even even all the way up to the day I decided I wanted to be a firefighter. And and that's that's kind of where what led me. Uh, oh, to where how to lead. I had no idea there was even firefighters to be in. <laughs> Honestly, I thought they were just dudes in the red truck who <laughs> just waved at everybody. Right? <laughs> they always seem to showing smile. our abs. <laughs> really, I had no idea what they did, what happened, or you know where they go, what do they do, how do they live. And I had a friend, uh, his uh, lifelong friend, so I was six years old, named Nick Johnson. Um, really, he just had a gnarly battle with cancer, survived it, um, and is in remission now. So awesome. He's a firefighter. And so he, uh, he was always off. I mean, I was working gnarly construction, you know, digging ditches and throwing pipe in the ground and shovel grading stuff. And I'd get off work, mosey down to the beach. If it's still light, grab a surf. And this guy's like suntan has been there all day. <laughs> you know, it's like, bro, what the hell are you doing? And I knew, I knew he was like an EMT and I didn't know what the EMT was, but I knew, you know, he'd rode on an ambulance a little bit and then he got hired with this East County fire department and he invited me, uh, when I was just monkeying around and he's like, bro, come out to the station, meet the fellas, have some lunch. And I was in a pretty bad spot mentally, emote, just all around, you know, headed, hanging out with some wrong folks. And so I went out there and I was like, dude, this place is immaculate. And that's one thing that I think I, that's the other thing I did learn from my father is how to fucking make my bed. Right. And, and clean up after myself. And when I came out there, fire, this thing started opening compartments and showing me chainsaws and hammers and all this cool stuff. And I'm like, dude, what do you do with all this stuff? And he goes, Oh, we get fucking open cars up. Sorry. I keep dropping the F bomb. No, sometimes. Drop away. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, open cars up when people get crashed and, you know, we get on roofs and cut holes in roofs. I said, what? That stuff spoke to me. Like I could do that. Right. You're going to pay me to break some stuff. And so, um, and, and how I got hired was a trip. His, the chief was, he's a Vietnam vet himself. He was walking out. Uh, I was on the app floor. I'll remember it to this day. I had a little bit longer hair than I have now. I had a pretty good goatee going. Um, I was about 70 pounds thinner than I am now. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember walking by and my friend said, chief, this is my friend, Jared. He's an army veteran. And I remember him shaking my hand and asking me if I wanted to be a firefighter. And that was the very first day that I had ever had any introduction. And he says, with my, not, he was speaking to me. But he said, in his experience, all the veterans that he hired made good firefighters. That was like the first time I had remembered something positive that somebody said to me. He's like, when do you want to come for an interview? We have an opening in our reserve program. I was like, 
whenever you want, I'm ready. I think I said, I'm down. <laughs> I think that was the term. And uh, he's like, how about tomorrow at one o'clock? I said, absolutely. So I jam home. I call my buddy, Nick, dude, what should I wear? Right. And we, back then we had uh, the push button or the dial, right? Mm. No, no cell phones. So I'm going to call my friend. <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no cell And I was like, dude, I got an interview. And he's like, dude, stoked for you. Uh, what should I wear? And he goes, dude, do you have a suit? And I go, no. He said, um, well, I'd definitely shave your beard. I said, okay. So, all right, cool, thanks. So I didn't have anything to wear. So I went to my military uniform and I put on my dress greens, had my combat awards on it, my infantry blue rope, you know, my com- my 101st airborne patch on there on both shoulders. And I shaved my head high and tight, shaved all my beard. Boom, sat in the office one o'clock the next day. He walks right by, goes into his office. Secretary gets up and says, hey, you're one o'clock's here. And he goes, oh, set him in. I stood up and walked in and he just stared at me for a moment. I go, chief, my name is Jared Jaselski. I met you yesterday. And we sat there and had an awesome conversation. He's really heavily Native American. So his uh, is really hard to understand. (laughs) But um, me having Native American descent myself, uh, we kind of bonded on that. And then um, he offered me a position right there, and I started working for 25 bucks a day for the next six months. <laughs> That's about it. And that was my first introduction. Love it. Well, there's two things that come out of that. Obviously, both of you illustrated exactly what we, we kind of prefaced it with, was trauma that you bring in, you know, brought in even to the, the military, before you even enter the fire service. Um, the, the example with your first, you know, your biological dad, my ex, um, you know, I think she still needs to address this herself, but it happened to her. It's five years old. This dude's piece of shit just walked out and went and started a new family from scratch. So I know the things that I ripple effect dealt with with her came from, you know, um, her not addressing all, you know, the, the pain and, you know, the feeling of rejection, feeling not being good enough. Like, right. like you start a new family. That's a huge giant message that clearly I was shit and yeah. these, these kids are good. Yeah. And I even had him not the same level you're talking about, but I even had that element of that with, with my dad, where there was another woman and we found like Easter eggs with other kids' names on. Mm-hmm. We hadn't got any Easter eggs. You know what I mean? So even that's, yeah. that's a mild version, but yeah, I remember how much that hurt. Um, but, uh, but the other side of the fact is, you know, we both, well, you both, you know, all of us were drawn to this, this profession to protect. And I see that there's so much more trauma behind these stories that people realize. So many of us in these professions have, have been molested. Number of people that I know who have been molested as kids that are now wearing uniform is so disproportionate from what the average person would think. But that moment, it comes up over and over again. The, t- the time a human being looks someone in the eyes and saw them. And that was a change so that, you know, you can, we you know, talk about kindness and everything. You can just see a person and change their fucking world. Like Kevin Hines begged for someone to see him before he jumped off the San Francisco Bridge, the Golden Gate Bridge. And he didn't. And so he jumped, you know, but every you, know, you could see you were, you know, 10 and maybe see the fact that you were being abused. You know what I mean? So, it's such a powerful thing to see how vulnerable kids are that we, you know, have the honor to call brothers and sisters now and how important it is as members of society to be looking for people that are being hurt and be that chief, be that mentor, be that person that 
sees them and, and stops that cycle of, of trauma they're going through. Mm -hmm. Big time. There's a lot to it. You know, I've been uh, working for the last three years with uh, an organization called Sable Warrior um, that focuses on childhood trauma. It's a veterans organization that, um, you know, it was five and a half day program. We got it down to four. It's three days now. Um, and essentially, you know, we have suicidal veterans and first responders showing up to go through this process and, um, or this experience. And for a long time, we didn't know how to measure it. How, we, how do you measure soul work? It's all warrior led. There's no clinicians there. Um, we're doing, you know, we're meditating and we're doing equine therapy and we're processing childhood trauma. They said, listen, um, we're not going to tell war stories here. You know, when I got there, I'm like, then get, get me, like, what are we going to do? We're going to talk about what happened to you when you were little. I mean, get, get me the fuck out of here. I want nothing to do with this. No, what you said you were taking, were, that what you said you would take to the grave is what's killing you. Sit in that seat. You have six minutes, go in front of all these men you just met. And, um, and I did it and I felt better afterwards along with some meditation and just, just offloading that stuff. So, and since 2012, the last time I talked to Jake, I'm hoping that these numbers are still the same. Um, since 2012, we've had over a thousand warriors come through with the plan to commit suicide ideation attempts are all three and we've only lost four. So when the VA started looking at us, it was like, how do we measure this? How do you measure soul work? Well, we, we um, read a book called uh, The Body Keeps the Score, Dr. Vander Kolk, which is like the Bible for trauma. And he talks about the ACES, um, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Test. And you, I'm sure you've probably heard about this. And, and so it's starting to make its way back to the surface. Um, it's a test that Kaiser did in 1995. They gave this 10-question test to a bunch of men and then followed them, essentially. And they came up with a lot of data. And, and for purposes of, of the trauma conversation, um, I, th I think that if you score a five or above, so the questions are like, have, before your 18th birthday, have you ever witnessed your dad hitting your mom? Stuff like that. It's gnarly. And, um, and just, to, just to tell you guys, uh, out of 10 questions, I'm a nine, right? Which means I got a lot of work to do. <laughs> but um, if you score a five or above, you're like a thousand times more likely to commit suicide, and, and, and they, they came up with health, like heart, stroke, like all kinds of diabetes. They came up with all kinds of data from this test and it got pushed aside. Um, but it start, like I said, it started to make its way to the surface. So we started giving this test at Save a Warrior as a measuring stick. And um, our average score is a six. Um, very rarely do we have anybody come in to saw that's a zero or a one. So it was like, that's when the light bulb went on. And, and we were able to go back to the medical community, the, you know, the data collectors and say, look, this is our measuring stick now, and this is what's going on. And this, this is the problem right here. Jay Clark will tell you, I'm going to hand you the keys of the universe right now. It's childhood trauma. And a lot of, a lot of us go into these roles to get away from, to get away from what's going on at home. It's, it, I would say these, the numbers of men and women in service and childhood trauma are astronomical. I would say it's, it's way more than people even think, think it is, you know? Um, but now that we know that we could do something about it, right? Now we can get to the solution. A lot of people don't know what the problem is. They want to talk about what happened on the job. When talking about, they want to talk about the moral injury all day long. Well, you know, I'm, I'm really, like I said, because I've been mentored by Jay Clark and, um, and I've seen it work for myself and other people. Like I, I shepherd at Save a Warrior and I've been through 15 of them and, and, um, I watch people get well, you know, and, 
and they don't, we don't tell war stories unless there's some shame around something you did or didn't do on a call or in country, right. Or downrange. So, um, that's just to reiterate that, you know, the childhood trauma stuff, that's where it all starts, you know? And that, and what we don't realize is that you, when you have something like this happen to you and then you go on a call where you witness it subconsciously, it fucks with you, you know? And that stuff just, the shit bag gets too full if we don't have good coping skills. And I definitely didn't have good coping skills. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. liked all the bad ones. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like Jake, dopamine rush. I like the <laughs> dopamine hits, bro. <laughs> well, Jake, I attribute to absolutely, I can remember like certain guests that really gave me an aha moment. Some before I started the podcast is why I brought them on mm-hmm. and some during. And Jake was definitely the one that opened the door for the childhood trauma. And then I started asking the questions to other people that came on. They were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm right. like, oh shit, there's another entire rabbit hole that I wasn't even aware of. But yeah, I mean, it makes perfect sense. And then you get two types of people. You get ones, the cycle continues, like the the veteran that beats their kids, you know, we talked about. Um, and then you get the one that says the buck stops here. But again, how do you how do you identify what's happened to you to give you the strength and control that you can be the person that stops the cycle? Right. Well, it, and, and what I learned is that when we do, when we work on ourselves and we work on our own healing, we heal seven generations in front of us and seven behind us. So we're healing our ancestors when we heal ourselves. And and it's a, it's a gnarly ripple effect. But yeah, a lot of us just live in denial like, like Jared said, I just thought this was normal. I thought it was normal to, to get, to go home and have my alcoholic parents yelling at each other where I have to break up a fight and it's just what happens in my house. That's normal, right? No, it's not normal. That's not okay. And, and so once we can break through that denial, because denial holds up what well, we say, it's all, it holds up the whole game, right? Anger is fear and sadness. The only way through sadness is tears. The mature, more, uh, the mature uh, mood of a warrior is sadness. The only way through sadness is tears. And underneath that fear is shame. And shame is the fear of being disconnected, right? And if you know what was going on inside my house, you'd kick me out of the tribe, right? But we, and then we get caught up in this fear, in the shame, denial, dissociation, triangle of shit. And, and there's a way out of that. Um, and the solution is, is empathy, community, and daily practice. And that's how we get well. I mean, it's, it's, it's really simple. You can kind of plug in your, your isms or, you know, there's a lot to it, um, uh, but I, I've learned so much over the last, um, over the last three years, and and it's all generational trauma. It's all generational shame, is what it is, because your dad's beating you is usually because your dad was beat, or your you know, it's just this bundle of shit that's been passed down from generation to generation to generation. To gen- and as kids, we take it out of love, because we because our parents are God, and 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 then if we don't do something to stop it, then we pass it down to our kids. Yeah. Anything to add? No, I think it's. I'm I'm actually getting ready to go to Saw, um, <laughs> this Sunday. So I'm actually haven't been trying to th- really think about it because um, I know that it's going to be super difficult. Um, and the things I shared with you, the only people who've ever heard me say it is my wife and my therapist. So um, I. Is it was interesting about three or four weeks ago. Um, I've been in these anger rants on and off for a long time, and it's gotten progressively worse over the last like year. And my wife is just like, "You're angry all the time," and we were at home, 
and my kids packed up and left just kind of abruptly. And my wife and I got into it a little bit and she goes, you know, the reason why the girls left is because you're angry. And I go, well, I thought they were just going to San Diego. So no, they packed up and left because they don't want to be around you anymore. And that, and I had seen it and had heard it a thousand times over the years. But that moment, it like resonated to me as like this echo in my head. And I went, it's probably like a month ago. So I, I went into this like deep, like, where is this anger coming from? And, and, and when I read chapter 10 of your book, it made sense. Um, that my anger was coming. I was angry at my biological father. I'm angry at my parents, um, for not protecting me. I'm angry at the molester. I'm angry at every single kid who picked on someone. This had all this anger coming out over a period of time and it kept getting worse and worse, almost like I was getting ready to fucking blow. Um, uh, a couple weeks ago, I was pretty suicidal. Um, I had two attempts uh, in 2017 in December. One of them was a legitimate attempt where I just downed a bunch of pills and went to sleep for about 36 hours or so and woke up going, fuck, I'm still here. Like, you know, not uh, like I'm happy I didn't really want to do it, but it was like, Still in that same frame of mind yeah. when you came to. And and then uh, the second time was a few weeks later, sitting in my closet, nine millimeter, you know, just looking at it, playing with it, put around in the chamber. And right as I picked it back up off my leg, my phone started vibrating. And I looked down, it was the emoji of my oldest daughter. And that was like, oh. I put the gun down, let my wife know, hey, we need to get the guns out of the house. She got them out. I I, I believe in guns. I believe we need to have them, but I don't need them <laughs> right now. Um, and it's been an uphill journey, journey since then. And that was when I was in the thick of um, taking time off work with the whole work comp frustration that we talked about during lunch. Um, and post a significant event that happened at work with a couple child fatalities. Um, and that's been my journey since 2017 is trying to get well, but really the last couple of weeks and ask my wife the last three weeks, since I made that self discovery, she doesn't know how, what I discovered, but I've been like, I was able to take that angry, that anger. Okay. I know where it is, what it is now. I'm not mad at you. I'm not mad at the kids. I'm mad at these people that I can't even be mad at right now because they're not here. So I've been able to set that aside and go and I know I'm going to have to, I'm scared shitless because I know I'm going to have to deal with it here starting Sunday. And, and that's where I'm at today. It's, you know, I, I look at Jared and, and I'm smiling because I know what's on the other side of it for him. Well, I just had a thought. I don't want to put this out till you come back out. Okay. And we'll do a Skype interview. And okay. We'll tag on post Save a Warrior. I think that would be 
you know that'd be awesome that would be yeah and then people listening can actually follow that journey in two yeah. hours or whatever it is that'd be awesome yeah because like yeah. i said i you know i i just i can't wait for him i've been trying to get get my buddy to go <laughs> mm-hmm. i'm good i got it can't handle well <laughs> as easy as that right well it's you know i love this guy i love this man right here i don't want to put i don't want him putting a fucking gun in his mouth not at all not in the fucking slightest bit and and like men good men came back for me when i was hanging nooses in my closet and when i was fucking you know when i was when i had my attempts when i was hopeless and we you be you get into a trance you know if you've ever been there you know you, you there's this trance that happens where you just and and some people complete you know um but I don't want to happen. I don't want that to happen to him. I don't want that to happen to you. I don't want it to happen to the guys that I don't know that are out there because I know that because I live in the solution today and, and I know that we just need to get, we just need to get the message out. Right. And so I, I live in that solution. I live in, in service to, to others. I learned a lot at Save a Warrior. And that's why, like I said, but people, people don't go until they're ready and that's okay because you have to be ready to go. Jared's ready to go. And I'm super stoked for him and his family. I know his family, you know what I mean? Like, like super pumped, super pumped, you know? And I, but it, it's, it is going to be hard, but here's the thing. We, as men, we have to, we post-traumatic stress, bro, is just unmourned grief. And we have to just grieve and mourn this shit with other men tribally, like they used to a long time ago in the teepees, bro, you know, in, in, in ritual, and that's what we do at Save a Warrior with other men that, that are going through the same thing, you know, and there's something that happens somatically when that, when, when, when that, when that's done in, in sacred space. And, um, and this stuff will all make sense. And I even, I even hope you go someday, James. You know? I, I do too. If I can stop, <laughs> stop podcasting. Right. It's just, it's, it's initiation. It's a lot, you know, it's a secular spiritual initiation um, that informs the daily practice and the emphasis of serving others. I mean, they just told me like, this is what's going on with you. All that stuff I told you about generational trauma, angers, fear, and sadness. This is the, this is the shit you're caught up in. If you meditate every day and you go out and help somebody without expecting anything in return, your life will get better and then get sober too, Maddie. <laughs> and that was part of my story. Right. So, and that's what I did. And it, it did. They were right. And I have men in my life today that, like I didn't trust men, right? I was abused by men. I have men in my life today that I would do anything for, I would show up for, that I could talk about anything. I can call Jared up and tell him, dude, this is what I'm thinking right now. And he doesn't judge me. This is a judgment-free zone. And I could be that for other people too. So, um, and that's what, and now I have it in an abundance, abundance. Like, you know, I have, I have people that aren't first responders. I had a, I had a friend call me today uh, because of something that's going on with their son. You know, now people are reaching out to me for help and I'm, I'm able to, with the resources I have, you know, help them out. Dude, that's, it's about, you know, it's not about Maddie's ego anymore, right? It's not about Maddie. It's about making sure that other people are, are um, getting what they need and that, and that they're healthy and that they feel uh, worthy and loved. And, and I just douse people's, you know, shame with empathy and including myself. I have to do that myself. And these men in my life, they take away that baseball bat that I have that I'd love to beat the shit up out of myself with. Yeah. They don't let me do that. They don't let me have shame attacks. They don't let me go down that rabbit hole. But I got I to gotta pick up that phone and I got to reach out and I got to, I have to have that awareness that 
that something's going sideways. I'm drifting a little bit and, and do something about it, you know, pick up the thousand pound phone. So, you know, I'm so grateful to have men like Jared in my life, you know, and you're one of the first guys I reached out to too. I mean, because you were putting something out there, you got vulnerable because that's right. That would, Brene Brown's kind of right on that whole thing. You know, we, we we're we're designed to connect and we, how we do that for, through vulnerability, through getting honest with, I don't sit around, like you can sit around the fire station table, right. And talk about the next edition and the strip club and pussy and, and, you know, the extramarital affair or whatever. Right. And you pat it on the ass and you, what a great, what a bitching guy. Right. But how many times are we, are we sitting there talking about, about this stuff? Hey man, that, that call we went on, that really fucked with me. Right. Like, um, this shit's going on at home with my kid. You know, my kid had autism and not my kid, but this is just an example. And I'm struggling. My wife is struggling being a parent of a kid with autism, bro. Let's talk about that. You know, I'm, I'm here for you and not go over to the next station and fucking crack a joke about that dude. Right. And I've actually, you know, um, some of the, my favorite definitions of empathy are like, you know, admitting when I'm wrong, you know, which is very difficult to do as an alpha dog, right. Alpha male, um, you returning love for hate and excluding the excluded, you know, including the excluded. And, and some of the guys on the department now that a lot of the guys make fun of for whatever their quirkiness or whatever, um, because we've had some really, um, amazing, vulnerable conversations are some of my favorite people. You know, I just, I, I'm, I'm not in the judgment. I'm not in the judgment, um, career anymore. No. I, I just really try hard not to judge people. Well, look um, at the two stories I've just heard. I mean, look at you now, all right? You're angry at the moment or, you know, you're, you know, showing up half-assed because you got loaded the night before, whatever. We're judging you. Oh, he's a fucking addict, piece of shit, you know? Oh, he's, you know, uh, bipolar, whatever, you know? And it's like, no, you have to reverse engineer. And I'm so glad that that episode, I mean, the chapter resonated with you because that was the thing. I, I'm, A, I haven't been as dark as, as you guys have. And as we talked about earlier before we started recording. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole bunch of us that for whatever reason, our journey through gave us the tools, gave us, you know, the ability to, to cope in a different way, didn't load us with trauma, whatever the reason was. And it's on us to be part of the solution, to be looking out for people that are hurting. If you, if you're doing well, fucking awesome. Then go help someone, dipshit. Right. Don't just yeah, stand there and give yourself right. a medal. But, um, but with the book, I wanted it to be a tool just to, just to fucking pull the curtain back and be like, look, this is what we were, we're all the same generation sitting here. This is what we were taught growing up. Boys don't cry, rub some dirt in it, you know, don't fat shame, all this kind of stuff. And it's like, no, you know, here's the truth through a paramedic, a firefighter's eyes of all this shit. It's part of my personal stories, a huge amount of what I've learned and applied to my life and learned from these amazing people like Jake and everyone else has come on. And that was the thing. Well, it's not solution, but if it gives you a fucking aha moment, then you can go looking at podcasts, uh, you know, save a warrior, whatever is the next step and immerse yourself in your own wellness journey. That is it. But 22 push-ups isn't going to fucking change anything. But like you said, raw vulnerability and honesty and stripping down the facade so that the men and women that are hurting can actually step out of the shadows and talk. That is what we need to yeah. be doing. Getting in, did, getting in action. Did, have you seen the late, latest David Doggins uh, post on about the election? Um, I said, someone sent it to me and I think it was I think when I, I sent was, it to you. Yeah. So I haven't actually looked at it, it yet. It, it, well, so 
I love what he speaks. Um, it's truth. And he was talking about everybody's wanting change. And he looked, called out several presidents leading up. They all wanted change. They all wanted change. They all wanted change. And everybody's now partying in the street thinking things are going to change. And like what you just said, he said, things aren't going to change unless you change it. The mm-hmm. only person and yeah, <laughs> yeah. the only person who's going to fucking change is you. I mean, you know, he's got the best F bomb drop in the planet. Yeah, he's going to make me sound like a choir boy well, when I get yeah. him on. That's dude, that's that's just it right there. Like I, yeah. I like I I listen to guys getting arguments at the station about politics or whatever or, you know, and I'm just thinking to myself like because I I used to just mouth off. I'm not that guy anymore. I'm, you know, I meditate a lot. <laughs> and so I'm very um responsive rather than reactive. Um but uh I sit at the table and I listen to these guys and I'm just thinking to myself like if you really want to make a difference, get out from behind that table and go help somebody. Really go help somebody. Like what have you done to to help anybody else out, right? And you never know what the guy next to you is going through. So um, yeah, that's just, that's just my thing. You just being, being of service without my uniform on, without expecting anything in return for anybody. Right. Um, that's the secret sauce. Yeah. If only there were religious doctrines that told people to be good people and be kind and selfless, then we would be fine. Right. Oh, yeah. wait a second. There are. My <laughs> <Yeah>. bad. <laughs> Almost everyone, well, right? No, exactly. Well, but unless you'd interpret it to hang black people from trees or right. You right. Know, commit jihads, then, you know, maybe you've misinterpreted it slightly. Well, you know but. what's, you know what my favorite is so far? And I've, like I said, I was raised Catholic. Um, I've been through the Christian thing. I've, you know, um, I do Vipassana meditation which is the technique the Buddha taught in its purity. And I've learned so much from just sitting quietly. Isn't that what praying is? Ultimately, is meditation. Well, you could I mean, be you having can... a dialogue with, with a higher power, well, but ultimately it's, it's so if, being kind of if, if praying is talking to God and meditation is listening it, or the universe or whatever it is, the answers are all inside you and inside me. They're not out here. They're in here. And that's what Buddha did. People came to him and he said, come, uh, I have this problem. Da, 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 da. Come sit under this tree with me. I'm going to teach you this technique. And they're like, uh, okay. And he gave him some words of wisdom and, you know, and, and, and that's, you know, not to get too much in the weeds about it, about meditation. I love talking about meditation. I teach meditation to first responders and, and, um, when you're hypervigilant because of trauma to your brain and the jobs we do, and we have these, you know, these, this burnout from having these adrenaline, adrenaline dumps and they destroy our neural pathways and it puts, it puts us in our reptilian brain more than we're in our prefrontal cortex where we make rational decisions. Right. And, and so meditation scientifically proven to heal your brain. Um, and, and so when, when you have, when you're trying to, when this voice is going da 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 and you have childhood trauma and it's telling you you're not enough, there's not enough, you're not going to get what you want, you're going to lose what you have, you're all in ego and you're thinking about yourself a lot, I'm thinking about Matt a lot, um, when I can settle my thinking down enough, that's when the wisdom comes up, right? We're starving, we're, we're drowning in information right now and starving for wisdom. And, and that's, where, that's where I can sit back at the fire station now and go, I have what we call metacognition, right? Awareness of my thought process. Don't say that. Stay out of that conversation. That guy needs help, you know, and that all comes from a meditation practice, which I started at Save a Warrior and then took to the, you know, went to a 10-day Vipassana meditation course where you take a vow of silence, you meditate for 18 hours a day, and and you eat vegan, and I've done two, and I want to do one every year. It's a game changer. 
highly recommended folks out there. <laughs> I can't wait to go do one right now. The, the center's all closed down. And, and I'm going to get Jared out there with me one of these days, too. I don't know if I can handle it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you go bananas. Yeah. Oh, day three. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's not not talking that's hard. It's sitting with yourself. And that would be the hardest part for me. Sure. But you're safe. And, you know, it's like, essentially, it's 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 the universe or God-given EMDR. Because with EMDR, the, the, the clinician recreates REM sleep and then talks you down a rabbit hole. Well, but when you're, when you're, and then eventually the, the physiological response to those mem memories becomes less and less yeah. and less. It becomes right? a memory and not a, not a, like you right. said, in front of it's not here experience. instead of here. Mm -hmm. So meditation is just, it's just a natural way of doing that. And when I go do it, some shit comes up. I'm like, where did that come from? You know what I mean? But it's definitely the foundation to my, you know, and it's not, it's not really religious, you know, it's just, it could be if you wanted to, but there's mental and actual physical benefits to doing it. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, I do it. I, I love it. I use Headspace. So yeah. that's kind of my go-to. But it's something about Andy Puddicombe's voice. And it's like, James, just relax. And think <laughs> well, about the funny thing is, was I told my wife the other day that we were going to do this uh, interview. And I said, yeah, I think he's an English guy. And uh, remember the app Headspace we use? <laughs> I go, that's exactly what he sounds like. <laughs> and she's like, oh, you fall asleep then. <laughs> well, I had Andy on the show. Oh, did you? Yeah. So he started talking. We did the interview and I was like, oh, my eyes were starting to go droopy. I'm like, I got to wake up. He's, <laughs> what, not, what he's I, not, you know, sending me into inner space right now. He's actually doing a conversation. But when I, when I was first uh, really focused on trying to get well, um, my, my wife actually turned me on to that podcast because I was really having a hard time sleeping. I wasn't sleeping, even sitting still, as you can tell, I, I'm a, you know, um, and so just being able to breathe without thoughts rushing through my head is extremely difficult for me. So, um, just by doing those 10 minute, right. And then I was able to move to the 15 and then to the 20 minute to be able to, you know, knowing that meditation thoughts are going to come in but acknowledge them and let them go. That's the key that I, I, I need. The missing link or the missing key for me was letting them go. And, I, and so I still find myself ruminating a lot at night, but I just always think about this, how he describes it as this big feather, right? And just touch it, acknowledge it, and let it go. And I actually visually see that in my mind when I start ruminating, when I'm trying to breathe and, and relax. It's pretty, pretty weird. But it's no, pretty. it's awesome. It's <laughs> a practice. It takes practice. Yeah. You know? Well, it reminds so, me of that phrase that I think Buddha said it, isn't it? Like, before enlightenment, uh, carry water, chop wood. After enlightenment, carry water, chop wood. And it's true. You, you're in the exact same life when you come out of it. But, I mean, to me, just the productivity itself when that white noise is diminished and, you know, you start to think clearly, you're more, you know, you're not screaming at drivers that cut you off. And, you know, so it's, you could do exactly the same thing and just observe the benefits. Just so, be the observer. Yeah. Right. And, and not having to, you know, taking a step back and looking at it and not having to, and just knowing like, uh, I learned the, the term Nietzsche, which is the laws of, that's the laws of impermanence. Everything comes and goes. Our cells are growing and dying off and growing and dying off. And these feelings are going to come up. These thoughts, feelings, sensations, phenomenon, they're going to come up and they're going to pass. And we don't have to act on them. You know, it's, and we're not our thoughts. 
right? We're just a space for thoughts to pass through. And, um, and I love, I love kind of just going back to that all the time. Like, and I, I'll catch, you know, I just catch myself going, okay, there's that thought. I don't, here's a physiological response to it. Okay. Let's just sit on it. You know, my therapist tells me sit on your fucking hands, Maddie. That's like her no, favorite, that- her favorite line. Maddie, just sit on your fucking hands. You don't have to, sometimes you don't have to do anything, do nothing. Right. When we're not used to doing nothing, we had to do something. And, and for me, obviously the, with the substance abuse and the alcoholism, I want to reach for something. I want I don't want to feel feelings, especially the bad ones. All right. So I'm, so now it's like even more important for me to do that. And, and today it's just not being an asshole, you know, just being a good dude, not going right to the anger because essentially anger that perseverates is drama and drama is negative excitement, which causes a chemical, a chemical dump. It's process addiction. It's like gambling or, you know. That's why people like all those fucking awful reality TV shows. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's all, yeah, Hollywood's built on it. They want those chemicals dumping because of, because of that. And that's, you know, like I said, it goes... You can ju- I judge my my spiritual condition at the fire station table in the morning. <laughs> you know, it's like, bro, because I can get sucked in and caught up just like, you know, especially if the TV's on, you know, I'm just like, I'd shut it off. I constantly shut it off. I shut it off. I shut it off. I go on the station, shut it off or put cartoons on. <laughs> yeah. Well, I shoot for, um, you know, restaurants and bars if they don't have TVs on. Like, yeah. I hate that. And it's not again like, oh, I have a problem. I need to get over it. No. When you've done what we've done for, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, you're stimulated. Totally. Like, I was just at Newport in the, on the, the pier. I was telling Dickie, like, my wife's, you know, idea of a good day is to go to Universal Studios. There was nothing more powerful than standing there with him this morning and watching dolphins. There's a whole, mm-hmm. you know, school of dolphins or pod that went by mm-hmm. and it was, it was awesome. Right. That's my happy place, yeah. you know. Yeah, me so, too, bro. You know, that overstimulation for us is yeah, is not good. Yeah. Well, let's let's walk you through so, you know, you got hired with Anaheim. Uh-huh. So walk me through when things were good and then and then the kind of downward spiral that you experienced first. Okay. Uh let's see. So I I uh I took like 50 tests all over up and down the state and Whoa. all over. Yeah, I went to, <laughs> went all over and 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 finally um standing under the big A, right? you know, getting the uh, application and, um, I got, I got hired with the city of Anaheim, uh, went through their process and, and that was like a dream come true. Like going to the, going to the fire Academy, I ended up transferring to Santa Ana college and finishing my fire classes there. And I, and going to the basic fire Academy at Santa Ana college, um, and watching the Anaheim guys come in for ladders, like ladders are super hard. Ladders are super hard, you know, and, and the Anaheim guys are like the shit. Right. So, and, uh, and those guys coming in and just like, remember looking at their belt buckles because it said Anaheim fire on their belt buckle. And I was like, like fire cowboys. Yeah, <laughs> totally. bro. <laughs> exactly. Knuckleheads, all of us. <laughs> and, uh, and just the, the character, you know, um, Dave Baker and, and, um, and Captain Stroud and, and just some like, um, uh, John Strickland, you know, some of the just best guys at what they do and, uh, coming in and teaching ladders. And so to get hired there was like, this is like, this is awesome. Like I remember going and picking up all my gear and coming, coming home that night and like 
putting it all on and crawling around the floor and just just like a goofball. You know what I mean? I was like, telling my wife I did the same thing when I first got <laughs> home. It was like fancy dress. Oh, night, to- like oh totally. Got home. Yeah, and, was was yeah. <laughs> and everything was all crusty and like just brand new, you know, and and yellow. And uh, and I remember I never th- did that. <laughs> yeah, bullshit. <laughs> and I, I took that belt this is buckle. A place of honesty, right? Yeah, we're, we're in the bubble, bro. We're in the trust tree. Um, but I took that belt buckle and I put it right on my nightstand, bro. And I fucking just stared at it, you know, thinking like everything's gonna be good now, right? I worked so hard to get here, and um, and it it and it was it was for a while, you know. I I put myself on the on the west end of town. I like to say that. The, the part of town that Disney doesn't put in the, uh, in the brochures. You're very familiar with it. And, uh, and I was on engine four, you know, and, um, which is a very busy house. And because I wanted to go to paramedic school, I wanted to be a medic. And, and, um, and so I put myself where the medical calls were happening and, and, um, gosh, and, and, you know, I had some really, my first, um, my first partner was the saltiest, crustiest, crabbiest. And and looking back now, you just know guys were all touched by PTS in some way. Oh, yeah. Right? That's I had the a, thing. I had a fucking captain at Station 8 who, if your sheets made noise, he loses shit. And I had a fucking sleeping bag my first year <laughs> with, like, <laughs> zippers on it. Yeah, and I'm like, dude. Uh, this so, is a fire shelter. Yeah. <laughs> but... um. But there was, you know, there was so much to learn from all those guys, and and I had a really good crew um, uh, to begin with. Um, and Ray Larkins was my senior hose, and and uh, he he was salty and he was angry, um, but he was he had a big heart. He was a good dude, and he was an ass kicking firefighter, like fucking, like hands down. He taught me how to be an aggressive aggressive firefighter and i like i in in anaheim we pride ourselves on that right we're we're gonna pick up your hose line and go in and and like we're just we're those guys right and we had a reputation for being some of the best um in the county and and um and so i yeah for you know uh but the novelty of the job wore off pretty quick um and standing in some of those scenarios you know i whatever we all we all know what the calls are it's, it's ugly. Um, it involves kids. Um, and, uh, after six years, I, I finally got them to send me to paramedic school. Um, I went to medic school and, um, had some, I don't know what it is like, but I had some pretty gnarly calls as a new medic, you know, like, I don't know, like whatever, like giving epi for, for asthma sub Q or something, you know, like that shit just happens in medic school. Like I can't remember the last time I did that. Right. But, um, and I go on all kinds of asthmatics at Disneyland. So, um, I, you know, I had a couple gnarly calls. Um, one obviously was a, was a kid who got run over by a car was wearing the same diapers my kid wears. And, and, uh, and going to critical incident stress debriefings back in the day was like, um, yeah. Are you good? I'm good. Yeah. Everybody just kind of, I mean, they were doing the best they could with what they had at the time. I get it. And, and I remember after that call, they're like, do you want to go home? And I'm like, yeah, I want to go home. And, and I was in the station and I was putting my shit away to go home and the tones were going off and I was fucking cringing, you know? And, uh, and I remember my captain at the time coming up to me, um, and telling me, Hey dude, um, when they ask you to go home, you tell them fucking no. Because ne- now someone's going to get mandatory to come in here to fucking fill your spot because you can't hang. 
you know, and I'm, and I was like, okay, I guess, you know, I guess that's the way it is. And, and, um, and so after, after being in the busy side of town for 10 years, um, I started getting, um, what we know now is the signs and symptoms of post-traumatic stress, right? Back then we didn't, right. That's what, that's what they got in Iraq. That's what they got in Af- Afghanistan and Vietnam. We firefighters don't get that. And, uh, and I was, I was hitting it hard. I was the life of the party. You know, the guys would go to, uh, the bar that opened in downtown Anaheim and at 6am it opened up and we'd get off shift and go to the bar and, and they would leave at noon and Maddie had to stay, you know, I just couldn't stop. And, and then, um, just full athlete warrior, like extramarital affairs, started cheating on my wife. Um, I was on Ambien to go to sleep. I was self-medicating. Um, and, and, uh, and then my back started hurting me and this is just kind of a, nu- a nutshell. And I like to say this too, I, I got all these little disclaimers, but, um, I like to say too, that, the, the, that the city of Anaheim did the best they could with what they had at the time. Um, we, we, um, I get to be a tip of the spear now to, to get out there with, um, some of the people that are trying to make things better for the next guy. And, and that's all kind of that, um, that Victor Frankel, um, just man search for meaning, you know, just kind of finding meaning in my suffering to help the next person. And so I, uh, let's see, I, my back started hurting me. I was going through a gnarly divorce. I have three sons. Um, they were real little at the time and my alcoholism was out of control. Um, every time I'd, my back would start spasming that I'd go to the city doc, he'd give me a cortisone shot and send me back to work. And what do we do with that? We just work harder. And, um, until, until, um, a couple court cases later going back and forth with my ex-wife, um, I, um, was working on the puff, you know, the puff, right? Cause Dickie gave us that name. So I work on a medic rig that responds into Disneyland. Oh, that's a puff. I don't remember <laughs> it being referred to that way. But. Yeah. They call us the puffers. Paramedics unassigned to firefighting. <laughs> <laughs> Even the chief's like, what's the puff doing today? <laughs> I love it, bro. I lean into it. So that was Dickie. Thank you, Dickie. Well, it's funny because actually he was probably thinking puff because that means gay guy in British and probably. I think South Africa means gay guy in South Africa. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so, yeah, he called us the puffers. <laughs> it's funny. I love, I love, I lean into it, bro. I love that. Mm-hmm. That's my little bubble. I like working with the Disney folks and I love parent, being paramedics. So, um, I was long night on the, on the puff and, uh, and my back was killing me so bad. Um, in the morning, my, my partner came in to get me for a call and he's like, Hey dude, we got a call. I'm like, I can't get out of bed. And, uh, he's like, well, uh, he went, he thought I was joking. Really? He went and grabbed another guy. It was a shift change, went on the call and I laid in that bed uh, at station three for an hour, dude, like, like thinking to myself, it was just like the longest hour of my life. Like if I can't get out of this bed and, and continue to, to do this job, like, what am I going to do? How am I going to pay my, my bills? How am I going to pay my child support? Who the fuck am I? Right. If I'm not a firefighter, um, I, I've, I've worked so hard to get here and, and this is, this is where I'm, this is where I'm at right now, laying in a bed with my back hurting so bad that I can't get, get up and I got to piss myself. Like I, I thought I'd go out like a hero, you know, and not this way. And so, um, I finally mustered up the strength to grab my phone and, um, and call my girlfriend at the time. 
who until her hasten the guys in here so guys came in they plugged a line to me they sent me to uh uci medical center um where they were just going to dope me up and send me home again you know but thank god i knew the doctor there and i was like hey something's wrong with me like can you please do an mri because it's going to take me forever to get one if i go back and and so she did and and um and two days later, the city sent me to a specialist and the specialist said, I'm reading the write-up from UCI and I'm looking at your MRI and it's like two different patients. And I thought, man, I'm crazy. Like some, nothing's wrong with me, you know? And he's like, no, take a look at this. I mean, I dropped foot. I was numb everywhere. It was bad. And um, and so he's, I had sent one of my discs so far down in my spinal column that that um, it was causing all those things to happen. And he's like, you don't really have a choice. You need to have surgery. And um and I'm like, okay, well, uh, <laughs> um, I'm living at a buddy's house, um, uh, during that time, waiting a month for the surgery, um, rented a room in Laguna beach, California. Um, and just in pain every day, um, staring at that bottle of Percocet, you know, uh, so, um, they, I was not prepared for that surgery. And we throw around surgery in the military and the in in first responder world like it's no fucking big deal. You know what I mean? I was like, oh, are your shoulder fixed? Yeah, I'm getting shoulder back surgery. Yeah, back surgery. It's like I, w- I had like isolated myself so much already. And I know I, I isolation is very hard to do at the fire station, but I did it. I brought my Xbox to work and I play video games. So I had I take a lot of ownership for 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 my behavior and pushing myself away and from some of the things I was doing to dissociate, um, during that time with my alcoholism. And, and so I didn't have too many friends left, you know, and I was showing up late for work. And so before that even happened, right. So now I'm off duty, I'm waiting for the surgery. I'm thinking about killing myself every day. Um, and I'm super, super scared, you know, to have, you know, to have this, I, the doctor's like, there's a 15% chance, like, you know, um, you'll never go back to work. There's a 1% chance you'll never get an erection again. You know, there's a 2% chance you'll never walk again. And I'm thinking, this is, this is like, <laughs> this is serious, you know? And, um, and I, I went through, I had the surgery. Um, and after that is right about the time, um, you were doing the dark side project. Um, Eric Weave had jumped off the bridge. Um, and I remember, uh, my ex-wife sending me that text and me just going, dude, I'm right there. Like I'm fucking, I'm about to go do the same thing. And, uh, and I'm all in pain laid up. Um, and then I saw you had put something out on social media and I made that video and, uh, we kind of chit chatted a little bit. Um, a guy from the college reached out for me, reached out to me, uh, named Dave, Dave Sabo. Like I was, talk about humility and I have like an amazing girlfriend at the time who was like who saw something in me I didn't see in myself and she's like um putting emails out on or putting Facebook posts out like hey Matt needs a ride because I had lost everything you know Matt needs a ride to to his doctor's appointments and like dispatchers were taking me to doctor's appointments not my own guys you know and it was like fuck like but there were people that showed up for me you know I was like I spent a lot of time thinking about the people that weren't there for me because I was like dude if I would have gone through a roof or got hit by a car I'd been a fucking hero but because I couldn't get out of bed 15 years of abuse to my body, like I'm forgotten, you know, but I own a lot of that now. So, um, long story short or longer, um, uh, it doesn't need to be short. Okay. Yeah. There's, um, I, let's see. 
Oh, Dave Sabo reached out because we had put some stuff on on Facebook, and and this was my first. He was like one of my first real aware glimpses of what service to others look like. So this guy shows up. He he teaches at Santa Ana College. He's the, he's the kinesiology guy. He does all their fitness stuff. Super dog guy does has a gym of his own, and he 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 reached out and he's like, dude, um, I want to oh, can I come to your house and have a chit chat with you? I'm like, yeah, sure, you know. And he's like, um, he showed up. He goes, dude, um, I want to rehab you back to work. And I was like, he goes, I have a gym in Lake Forest. You know, let me help you. And I'm like, bro, I, I'd love that, but I'm broke. Like, I have no money to give you. And uh, he's like, I don't want your money. And I was like, Whoa. wow, that's a, that's not a concept for for an alcoholic, egotistical, you know, firefighter like to play God, right? I'm If I'm helping other people, I'm getting paid time and a half, dude, right? So to have that him and I was like look that's great and I want to do it but even if I wanted to I couldn't get to you I don't have a car because I lost my car and everything and he's like uh, I have an extra truck at my house you can borrow the truck to, to drive to to the workouts yeah so um we I ended up going working out with him uh and you know the, the workers comp docs are like bro you guys are like fucking athletes like you'll be back to work in four months no problem you know and I'm thinking I can't even walk up the stairs and down or shower myself and you're telling me this like I don't see, I'm, and I'm gonna go back and be a firefighter in four months anyways I had that in my mind and then working with Dave five months I got back and all within um uh <sighs> two weeks of being back to work, like four shifts. I was icing my back again. My, I was having drop foot. My, I was going to step up a, on a curb and my foot wouldn't go with me and it was starting to kill me again. And I'm like, and then I had to go back to court, um, with my ex-wife for some child support stuff. I had to rent a car and, um, I ended up renting a, a muscle car. It was the only car they had left. It was a Dodge charger it had 600 miles on it. And, um, and I went to court, I lost custody of my kids that morning and uh so my best thinking put me in that dodge charger <laughs> driving 106 miles per, miles per hour down the five freeway drunk with my sober girlfriend in the car and um instead of staying with my kids that night and uh i got pulled over by chp <laughs> And even, even looking back, like thinking, dude, don't you know who I think I am? Like, you're not going to give me a fucking ticket. I'm, I'm a firefighter, right? Well, I was wrong. And, um, uh, they hooked me up for deuce. They let me go in the field. Um, and I used to hate those men for, for what they did to me, but, um, not today, right? Not today. Those men actually saved my life because everything changed after that night. So, um, I ended up, uh, in a parking lot in, uh, after they let me go, they let me go in the field. They booked me and let me go. I ended up in a parking lot in, in, um, in like San Clemente, Dana point area. Um, I damaged the car really bad. I lost it. I'm like, I'm going to lose the only thing I have left, right? My job. And, uh, and I'm like, I'm going to make enough noise in this parking lot to, um, to have the sheriffs respond. And then I'm going to do everything I, and say everything I know to do and say and reach behind this dumpster and get them to kill me. And that was, that was my way out. And, and, uh, my girlfriend got to them before, before they got, um, back behind the dumpster and told him that w what my plan was. And then I was unarmed and I didn't have anything. And, and so instead of two orange County sheriffs, um, 
uh, shooting me that night. I got two of the coolest Orange County sheriffs on the fi- on the on the sheriff's department shut off their body cams and like spent some time with me behind that dumpster. Really? Like, yeah. Like, bro. Like, um, and like I like I like to say that that's that was my first like aware um um example of what peer to peer looks like. Those guys was just like throwing up all over those guys and they're like yeah me too bro yeah i get it i have an ex-wife too yeah i you know i understand i'm like i lost fucking custody of my kids you know i just i can't remember a lot of things i said but they were just they just knew how to you know and um as a matter of fact a little side note you know as as a i'm a 12 stepper i'm in 12 couple 12 step programs and the ninth step is to make your amends and uh about a month ago i finally got it got to make my amends to one of those officers because I work with um, suicidal veterans and first responders now. And I know what it's like on the other side when one of those guys has to kill somebody, especially someone that wants to die by cop. I see what it does to those guys. And I could have been one of those ghosts for those guys. So, um, the conversation was awesome. Like awesome, dude. Like, like he remembered the call. He remembered me. He, he, uh, as a matter of fact, um, like I said, I go speak all over the country and up and down the state and, and I'm like, dude, it would be so powerful if you were in the room. So one of these days he's gonna be sitting in the back of the room. So when I get to that part of the story, it'll be there. So super cool guy. Like, um, I'm hoping to have a cup of coffee with him soon. So, Bro, it's funny. I tell this story like a million times, but it, you know, some parts still hit hit me a little but bit. But that's harder the thing: the reaction <laughs> isn't a negative one. No, you know, not at all. It's tearing you up and everything. Bro, it's that's gratitude. A yeah, it's, yeah, it's absolutely. And, and it's, I, you it's know, crazy. We used to think of that as weakness of being a pussy. Yeah. Like, no, bro. I, you know, I I cry. <laughs> you know, I I cry now. Like I said, it's it's how we process grief. You know, and I'm and obviously it's you know some of that stuff is still. It's still, and it's, it's like I said, it's weird which ones hit, different things hit me at different times, depending on where I'm at in my therapy or whatever. So, but, um, so, you know, uh, I, after that night, um, I walked home, um, from that parking lot and I laid in my bed and, um, and I was like, yeah, I'm done. Like, this is it. And so, uh, Elizabeth, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, um, called Ricky Cheatham, um, and basically told him like, like Matt's not going to make it. Like you guys got to do something. So, uh, um, there, we had a, a, a guy who got hired uh, with us. He was with us, uh, I don't know, a couple, a couple years. His name is Emmanuel Ponce de Leon. He was from San Bernardino city fire and he had we had connected um and he opened up to i was having a bad day and he opened up to me about some stuff he was going through so we got kind of close and he ended up coming to my house um and just sitting with me um he's like so we have this you know we have this eap now um called uh the counseling team international um, which is a first responder, 
uh, EAP there with a bunch of um, really culturally competent clinicians. And we were in the process at the time of like Ricky and, and Jeremy Keith from, from the union were in the process of trying to get this contract with them because I had reached out a couple of times to our EAP that we had. And like I said, the city of Anaheim did the best they could with what they had, but I got a, I got a therapy, like you know, the old EAP was just like, the secretaries from the city go there. Right. And so I had reached out a couple of times and gone and I had a therapist tell me, yeah, you got PTSD. Um, you need some Xanax and a good lawyer was her, was her suggestion. Yeah. So you know how many EAP horror stories I've heard? Too? Oh, bro. I know at the end of the day, it's an insurance, you know, umbrella, but yeah. you know, the, the lack of vetting for the people that are allowed to, you know, interact with us. Right. I mean, I guarantee you, obviously, they weren't on here because they're gone. Right. But I guarantee you there are numerous suicides attributed to one last ditch through an AAP that got a reception like that and they right. went off. Just like you told me as we as we first met today that we're, miss, you know, we're minus one incredible human being because red tape got yep. in the way. They weren't covered. Yeah. And now they're not with us anymore. Yeah. And that breaks my heart, dude, to, to, get, that, to get that text message today. Having a guy that's rostered for Save a Warrior who was trying to get to this treatment center to overdose and die because, because a doctor somewhere, an insurance company somewhere wouldn't, wouldn't cover him to come here. It fucking breaks my heart, dude. That's, it's really what drives me to do what I do, you know, put myself out there like this, you know, cause I, cause there's a solution to that shit. And I just, I want to be part of it. You know, I want to go out there. I want to tell my story. I want to fight for the guys that that are in that dark place, all brain damaged because it's a brain injury that we have who can't help themselves, right? So, yeah, it's heartbreaking, dude. That, like, yeah, this is the moment I get to cry about that because when I see that, it just, it makes me sad. It makes me really sad. So, um, you know... That's that's the good news in all this is that that I get to put myself out in the world and I get to I get to work with some really amazing people here at the treatment center, um, and go out go out in the world and try and and try and make EAPs better, you know. Work with Nancy Bull from the counseling team. Work with her clinicians. Um, I go like I she I do the alcohol portion of her uh, peer support classes. I love going out there to all the different departments. You know, I got hired by the by Santa Ana College to. Um, to teach the mental health portion of the basic fire Academy and, and teach them those kids meditation. And then they send me out to all their departments that they have um, contracts with to do that. Right. And, and that's, that's what I love to do. So this doesn't happen. Right. So this doesn't happen. So, but in a, a nutshell, I, you know, I, after that suicide attempt, um, I was given a card um, for a, a clinician from the counseling team. Her name's Shauna Hill. Um, and she said, Hey, uh, after two sessions with her, She's like, uh, there's a five and a half day program for combat veterans and, and, uh, they accept first responders in Malibu where they were at the time where save a warrior was at the time. Uh, you might want to look into it. You know, she's like, I haven't sent anybody there yet, but I've heard nothing but good things. And so I, uh, I filled out the application online. She said, it's free. The only thing you pay for is your travel to get there. And, and, um, and I showed up, um, actually Brian Haggerty, who's one of the loves of my life. One of these men in my life that I do this guy like one of the most amazing men on this planet, army veteran, LAPD officer. He called me back. And, um, after I filled out the application or with the help of my 
my girlfriend who's helping me with a lot of things at the time. Um, and, uh, I'll never forget how that conversation went with him. Um, he said a lot of things that I hadn't heard before. Um, and one being, Hey Maddie, um, everything that you're experiencing and going through is completely normal. I never heard that before. I thought I was broken. I thought I was crazy. I thought I was mentally ill. I thought I was a piece of shit alcoholic. He's like, dude, it's normal. You're having a normal human response to trauma. And, uh, and I was like, okay. Um, there's the first aha moment. Like, wow. And, um, and then he's like, dude, look, just read these couple books. You know, what it is like to go to war? Carl Marlantis and tribe Sebastian Younger. And, um, can you hold on for a month? Make your bed every morning. Don't get back in it until it's time to go to bed at night, which for it, like I said, for an alcoholic, um, injured, depressed firefighter is a very hard thing to do. It's not, I spent a lot of time in my bed just with the covers over my head, just, you know, checked out. And, um, and so I, I, uh, I held on and I showed up. The other thing he did was that man drove three hours one way from Santa Clarita to Laguna Beach, California to teach me how to meditate. Right. And I was like, who is this guy too? Like who does that? Right. This is another police officer. Right. Yeah. Mm. He was just, he was still working at the time and, and, uh, because they, they came back for him, you know? And so, um, I ended up going and like I said before, they're like, we're not going to tell war stories. It's not about what you think it is. Um, we're going to talk about how, what happened when you were a little kid and we're going to meditate. We're going to do some equine therapy and we're going to draw mandalas and we're going to do some somatic work and we're going to burn that shit off. And if you never want to tell that story again, you never have to, you know, and we're going to ball our eyes out, which is not something that I was used to doing. Right. Because we're told don't cry, you know, only pussies cry, suck it up, you, whatever, you know? And, um, and I left after, um, after that experience, um, meditating, um, the ideation was gone. I could not get away from the thoughts and killing myself. Like I couldn't look at the ocean, which I love without thinking about come, going for a swim. I didn't come back from. Let me just interject for a second for <laughs> both of you, because this is something that's pertinent right in this moment of the story. There's so many people that look at suicide and go, oh, fucking coward. Just, just bail. Just, you know, pull the plug. You know, left everyone else to deal with it. But the actual people that I've had that survived the bridge jump, the, the trigger, you know, when to deploy, whatever the right term is, but, um, you know, the hammer fell, but the, the bullet didn't go off, whatever it was. Every single person had the same mindset that it was a selfless act because the brain was so miswired that they were convinced that they were a burden to their family. And the world we better off without them. Is that something that you guys experienced at that moment? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 It's it's and that's the thing. So that's that's why you know you're working so hard and you know to to fix this is because when our men and women get to that point, you know you can't just you know pull your trousers up. You can't just shake it off. You know your entire world is is uh you know they the upside down in um stranger things that's what these people are experiencing everything yeah. is completely fucking backwards you're brain injured and you just want to shut this fucking thing off and and that's it's it, you it, you start looking for the exit and it's it is it's a selfless thing it's not selfish at all you know and 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 like i said in in you start thinking that way and you and you can put yourself in a trance. I put myself in a couple where it got really close and something, thank God, something always snapped me out of it. 
you know? Um, but you know, it's funny. I, I, <laughs> I tried to take an insurance policy out on myself cause I was going to go for a swim. I didn't come back from, and I didn't pass the drug test. <laughs> Don't. Reje- rejection's God's protection. Um, yeah. And then, you know, a, a year ago, Moose and I, I call my, my wife Moose. That's her nickname. <laughs> um, she, her and I, um, got insurance policies for all the right reasons and passed the flying colors and got the best premiums. And so, but, um, let's see, uh, sobriety is a part of my story. Um, not everybody, like I said, there's process addiction and there's chemical addiction. Some people are addicted to drama and, and those, that internal drugstore. And, um, and I, uh, you know, I had, I had to get, get sober and the guys up at Save Warrior, some of them were talking about sobriety and, and 12 step. And I was just like, that's, I've always been like, that's for them. That's not for me. Like, I, you know what I mean? That's, and, uh, and about, I mean, it took me a couple months, you know, I was just about putting one foot in front of the other every day when I got back and just, I had caught like three court cases <laughs> and I was just about walking through those things and, and I was still off work on the injury. And, and, um, and so, yeah, I, I, it was, I just, I would meditate every day and that led me to the rooms of, of 12 step. And I walked in, I remember my first meeting I walked into, um, uh, they, I was super scared, right? Super nervous. I'm like, I'm, I'm admitting now that I'm an alcoholic and, um, what does that mean? Right. How are people going to look at me? What are they going to like? Like we're always the last ones to know, by the way, <laughs> like people, you know, cause I tell you the night before, um, cause I was doing really well for a couple, for a couple months for the most part, trying to put the wheels back on the track and, and stay in communication with the guys from Saul and, and do all this stuff. And I was just, I, I was still in denial about my alcoholism and I went out drinking one drink. I'm going to go have one drink, right. And drop off my friend at the bar. Uh, one became however many and, um, true story. Uh, I ended up screaming at my girlfriend trying to jump out of the car, like just went back to instant asshole. And, um, and I woke up that morning in my own piss, you know, and I looked over at Elizabeth, the moose and I'm like, um, I think I'm an alcoholic. She's like, you think? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Change the bed, bro. You weirdo. And, uh, and three days later I ended up walking into a, to a 12 step meeting and, and, um, and I remember they, they do the seventh tradition and it was, it's in a, in a Lutheran preschool and the seven traditions is you collect a couple bucks for coffee and, and the, the Tarentha space. And it was a little plastic fire helmet. No, no shit. And I'm like, and I call that a God shot, right? That's phenomenon. That's, that's like, bro, that's, this is exactly where you need to be. And I've been in recovery ever since. And, and, um, and I'm, I, I'm in another 12 step program, which is, um, adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families, which is, which is the why it's a little deeper dive. And, uh, I have a couple sponsors and, and, um, I have a bunch of men that hold me accountable. And that took me to, you know, that, that was, you know, I, I, I could think of all the little miracles along the way. Right. I just, I was like, okay, I didn't have a job. I was, I was getting sober. I was feeling better. Um, I was going to two, three meetings a day, you know? Yeah. And, um, because I was off work and I was just, and I was trying to be of service, 
you know, in, in the meetings and, and I was doing what they asked me to do. Right. Which I'm not used to. Right. I fucking got this. No, you don't got this, Maddie. <laughs> you know, your best thinking got your ass in the seat. So I, you know, I surrendered to that and I, and I went through the steps and, and then, um, they were called, they, I, I was able to make it back to work, which is a miracle. You know, I'm, I'm, yeah, come down to like the driver's license thing, you know, cause, cause if I showed up to work without a driver's license, I was going to lose my job. And, and, um, and it was like no shit a, a minute before I was sentenced to make it to f- sign up for the classes, to get to the DMV before they gave me my temporary to drive at work and to work. And it was like, I swear to you, he was calling Sacramento the guy at the DMV at five o'clock to make sure they got that information. I mean, and it's just story and story, story after, yeah, after story above and beyond. Yeah. To help oh, that too, yeah. you know? And, and so, um, yeah, so, you know, I'm, I'm doing a lot now. We can get into that later, but, but that's, I mean, essentially, um, I was able to make it back to work. Um, I, um, do a lot of work to stay well a lot. I see a therapist twice a week. I, I, um, I go to marriage counseling with with my wife. We have a great relationship. Like it was tumultuous. Like we trauma bonded big time. Um, like I have the most incredible wife, bro. Like she definitely saw something in me. I can see it myself. And our relationship today looks nothing like it did. Nothing. I mean, we have an incredible relationship. She's like the love of my life, dude. Like, and then, you know, in regards to the mother of my kids, you know, we were together a long time too. I I still love her. You know, she's off doing her thing now. She's doing really well. We did not like each other for a long time and fought a lot. And now we co-parent the kids. Um, She's doing really well. Um, we just like, we have a family unit now that's different, but it works. Um, and we're all doing work on ourselves. Even, even my kids, super resilient. You know, there's a time my kids were taking care of me and, and, uh, they hadn't grieved, they had to grieve and mourn old dad who just played video games all day. And, you know, and so, um, but they, they've all been to therapy. We're continuing to go to therapy and, and together and, and th- there's no shame in it. Like I don't do When I go out speak, I'm like, Yeah. I have, there's no shame. I think I just, it it blows my mind to think that there's all these people out there that don't have somebody to talk to, you know, a professional to, to do all these, all these things like EMDR and neurofeedback and, and CBT and all these things to do to, 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 you know, how to have a place to just offload this stuff, you know, especially, and then you put the job on top of it. It's like, it's a, and then the sleep stuff, right? It's, we're, we're a recipe for disaster, um, I don't know how the guys did it for so long, but you know, like I said, I'm working now with guys, like it breaks my heart when a guy that's been retired two years shows up at the, the treatment center cause he's drinking too much and yelling at the wife. You're supposed to be out enjoying the rest of your life, bro. Like what? So, but that's in a nutshell. That's it. Beautiful. Yeah. We'll go back to Jared. So you, we had you entering the fire service, the so same, same exact thing. What was your journey through and when did you start noticing um, that, you know, things weren't a hundred percent? Yeah. So that, that, um, it was January of 1996. So this January will be 25 years. And 
and it was good. The first call I ever ran was a CPR on a 60 some odd year old lady and she passed away. Very first call as a firefighter EMT. Matter of fact, I actually was in my EMT class at the time because that was a requirement that they said you got to go and take. And it just happened at the same time the semester started. I was able to crash the class. So the department I worked for, it wasn't mandatory for reserve firefighters to have their EMT. So I don't even know if I had my CPR card, <laughs> to be honest. I just do compressions. Okay, what? how do I do that? You know, okay, like that, okay. <laughs> and so that's what I did for, you know, 20. It can't be any worse than the movie and television CPR <laughs> yeah, that we no, see. I think I did a good job because, you know, first couple times, you know, pop, pop, pop. You know, and I, it startled me. And, yep, that's normal. Keep going. Okay. So, first call, you know, it was what it was. And I was like, wow, you know, she died. And, but it's like, we, we, we were, we tried, you know, more than standing around watching. And I was in it. And that just went on. I worked for, uh, and that department was Saquon Fire Department. It was on Indian Reservation, but we had five different locations that we contracted with in the areas. Um, and I was able to work in a remote ambulance area where we went on lots of trauma. Um, and uh, one of my last calls of that fire department before going up to Salt Lake, taking tests, like Maddie said, in the 90s was gnarly, all up and down the state, other states. And we had some family living in Utah. And so I went up there and took the test with Salt Lake City and got hired. Um, but my last call going out at Saquon was uh, – you know, a triple fatality, two kids and a mom in a car accident head on with a, a semi truck. And, and they all expired while we were trying to execute, execute them, extricate them. Um, so it, it, I feel like I had a, a, I've had a really good career, made a lot of good saves. Um, uh, but it takes its toll on you, you know, um, uh, one one call I re very uh, very vividly remember was we called to a seven day old infant with heart problems and we get there and I was on truck eight we didn't have a paramedic on truck eight with Salt Lake City Fire um, the paramedic ran on the engine and we got called on the call because his engine wasn't available and parents are not picking up the baby the baby's laying in the crib and uh, mom did not want to touch the baby the dad did not because the baby had a heart defect and the doctors said, go home and your baby's going to die. So the little baby was blue, but still barely breathing and heartbeat. And I, and I figured, and, and I thought to myself, that's a sad way to die. So I just picked up the baby and held it as for 15 minutes and sat there in a old wooden rocking chair until it passed away. You know, those things kind of just, they stay with you. They, they, it just doesn't happen. And then you go back to sleep, you know, those and for me, I wasn't sad for the baby. I was sad for the parents. You know, the baby's dead, but the parents still have to live with that. And that, I think, for me, was some of the hardest things that I've had to work through and that built up. Um, in 2010, we had a really close family friend killed in Afghanistan in action. And I had, he was a, he was in the Army, 101st Airborne, same as I. And I had mentored him as a kid and coming up and kind of pointed him in direction, trying to steer him kind of 
away from what I did, just blindly entering the service. So he actually knew where he was going, had a contract and, you know, college fund and all that stuff set up. And, and so I felt I, I had some ownership in that. And, uh, when he was killed in Afghanistan, it was really hard for me to watch his parents go through that. I had so much guilt, um, that looking back on my behavioral health journey, that's when I really feel like I had started a downward spiral. My experience was EAP. I knew I needed to talk to somebody about it, made an appointment, went up there. When I left EAP, I felt worse. And that was the first time I ever thought about shooting myself or killing myself was short 2011. He passed away in 2010 in December. Um, on my daughter's fifth birthday. So her birthday's coming up. And so it's a constant reminder, but I got to stay happy and positive her because I don't want it to define her birthday. She has to live with that too. She knew him very well. Um, And so, you know, things like that just added up. Um, I held a lady's hand as she was bleeding out her carotid slashed by her husband and there's nothing I could do, you know? She's yeah, like barely like doing that whole thing. And all I told her was close your eyes. It'll be over soon. You know, um, just things like that just stuck with me and I just couldn't get them out of my head and, um, up and down roller coaster with my wife. Um, I never felt settled. We moved a lot. Um, I think we moved 11 times in 15 years. Um, I, I just, I felt, I never felt comfortable anywhere. Um, and my journey with substance was short. So hard and hit heavy for short and then clean. So I never felt like I was addicted to an alcohol or a drug or anything like that, but I definitely used it to knock myself out for, you know, and it started becoming more and more, but not like I wasn't the, you know, six pack a night guy kind of guy. Um, never really have been. Um, and, and in 2017, um, in September, I, it was a Tuesday morning. Um, I woke my wife up and I said, babe, I got to talk. There's some shit happening in my head. Um, there was a whole laundry list of shit that I had done throughout our marriage and just being mean and angry. And I, I just, something was happening in my head. I really felt like I was going crazy. Like there's something happening inside me and it's controlling my thoughts, my moods, my behaviors. Um, she had taken an insurance policy out on me, um, about a year ago because I was riding my motorcycle a lot. Um, like, like a wild man. Um, and I, I had taken an insurance policy out on myself too. Um, uh, she actually required it first. So I took mine out and then she followed up with another insurance. I was just, I was living very reckless with three kids, 
a mortgage, a killer job. And I just, I couldn't handle what was in here anymore. Um, I hadn't faced any of my childhood stuff, but that was the first time I told my wife that I had been molested as a kid. Um, she knew that my parents weren't the, the, the best, but like Matt says, dealing with what I know now they had going on in their head, you know, so I had told her like, you know, I kind of really unloaded like a lot of shit and she just says, babe, we'll get through it. And I didn't believe her. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know how I would have reacted if she would have dumped all that on me. And, um, <clears throat> so I said, I think I need to take some time off work. So I took five shifts of my vacation time, um, off and just stayed home. And we worked on our relationship. I started seeing a counselor. I started actually feeling better. Um, and so I, I decided I, I think I'm a, let's go back to work now. My annual leave was running out and I felt like, okay, I think I can get back on the horse. I needed that break. And December 27th, went back to work 24 hours. I got mandatory on the 28th to the 29th and the, uh, then went back to regular duty on 28th going into the 29th and about 1 30 in the morning we got a structure fire you know typical wake up in the middle of the night 90 percent of the time more than 90 percent they're nothing they're just somebody sees some smoke or whatever um, get to the rig read the mdc multiple calls black smoke fire coming from the second floor multiple victims trapped um I kind of briefed the guys as we were getting on. We headed out. It was in 33s this week, Rancho Bernardo. We were in 42s at the time, which is like Rancho, uh, Carmel Mountain area. It's on the 15, 56. And so we had a little bit of ways to go, but not not too much. Um, 33s pulled up, confirmed what the notes had said. And right as we pulled up, uh, they assigned me fire tech. And so I told the guys to pull a backup line. We went up there. As soon as we, I hit the front door, I heard the first uh, firefighter upstairs saying, "Hey, I got a victim," and I could hear him yelling it. And looking at the looking at the property, it was very sterile. There was a couch, a small table, a few pictures on the wall, but we couldn't really see it because the inversion was down right about chest high on the first floor. And the fire was going pretty good on the second master bedroom, bathroom, and rolling into the hall towards the stairway. Um, it was an adult male they found on the top of the stairs. So my uh, the two first in firefighters and one of my firefighters pulled the uh, the guy down the stairs, and then all four of them carried him out. So I make my way up the stairs, grab the nozzle, try to advance it up there by myself. It's pretty warm. I wouldn't say it was hot yet, but it was uncomfortable to stand up for sure. And, um, couldn't get to the fire. So I ran back down, pulled some more line, got up, advanced, knocked the fire out, right? Classic, just, you know, hit it pretty hard, pulled some line, smoke inversion came down. Um, by that time, my firefighter had gotten up to me and says, Hey, uh, what do you need? And I said, well, let's 
pull this line into the bedroom fully to wrap the corner. And right as I started to move forward, I advanced and like I had my hand down with the nozzle. My firefighter was like, I got a victim. And I was like, I was like, copy, where is it? And get him out of here. And he says, you're kneeling on him. And so I put my face down towards my feet and I could see like what appeared to be a pile of burnt clothes, but it was actually a 12 year old boy, 11 year old boy. Um, and so I slid him back to my firefighter, ordered him to take him downstairs. They took him downstairs. So my mind is we got a, we got a, a male, an adult. We just got a kid where the fuck's the mom, you know, or any other kids up here and I'm up there by myself. So I put the nozzle down. I, I kind of boogie into the room that was on fire. I take a quick look down. I, it was charred mattress to the coil. I figured if there's anybody in here, they're done. So I went, started, uh, to the bedroom next door. Smoke was to the floor doing the sweep. Um, I got to what was a bunk bed and popped up on top, swept real quick, the top bunk. As I went down, I boom, and I hit something in the bunk below. Um, I've been doing this job a long time. And 22 years at that point, I had trained hundreds of scenarios. I'd never have found a victim in the bed. We always put them somewhere where they're going to go hide. I was, when I hit that, I didn't believe I was touching a person. I pulled myself close and there was a little girl, seven years old, little face, hair, smoke around her mouth and nose. And I just grabbed her, boom. And as I grabbed her, I heard and felt what I thought was a breath. And so in my mind, I've got to save. Grabbed her, crawled down the floor, got down to the bottom of the stairs right then. Paramedic was coming in. Uh, Poway medic, I handed her off. I says, I've heard her breathe. I think she's alive. Boom. We go back upstairs, finish putting out the fire. Uh, I'm still kind of vigilant. Checked other bedrooms. We didn't find a mom. Um, day goes on, or the morning goes on. Sun's coming up now. And... All of a sudden, PD, unmarked cars starting to show up. Then a lady shows up, comes running up, screaming. Find out it's the mom. Husband and wife had been separated. Uh, husband's heavy alcoholic. He had the kids for the weekend and uh, got toasted and however ended up starting a fire in the master bedroom and and, and the kids died, both kids died. Um, we saved the dad. Um, so we went through that with the police officers five or six times, like step by step. What did you do? What did you see? Then back at the station, right? Um, no chiefs, no chaplains, no critical incident stress debriefing, no nothing. And I had never been to one ever in 20, two years as a firefighter at that point. And 
detectives came to the station that night. We went through it again. And I, I needless to say, I didn't sleep, right? Uh, or excuse me, we were there held over for quite a long time. By the time we actually went home, uh, I didn't sleep the n- next night. We come back on duty on the day of the 29th. Homicide detectives were waiting at the station when we got there again. Get a phone call from the chief. We're going to have a critical incident stress debriefing at one o'clock. Okay, whatever that is, you know. Um, and mind you, this is 2017, yeah. and I still haven't I'm talking ever 1986. Been, right, still haven't been through a critical incident stress debriefing ever, um, and and I hadn't slept, so I'm going on like four nights no sleep, and I couldn't. And now I'm feeling like I'm under investigation. Like, what did I do? Why am I the one being uh, interviewed or interrogated? Like, and it was gnarly. It wasn't like, okay, it was like super militant, very cold, which I, I understand their job now is if they are compassionate in those interviews, they get emotionally attached. And so I understand now why, but I couldn't, I couldn't process it. And Halloween, so went home again, hadn't slept, day number six, Halloween. I I couldn't, like, get those two faces out of my mind. I had two children at home at the same time, same age. I, I felt like I wanted to hold them, but I felt like I didn't want to hold them. I, I don't understand that feeling still. I'm still learning why that, why that happened. Um but uh, my mental uh, situation or status was rapidly declining um, with no sleep. I wasn't eating. Um, so going off shift on the 1st of November 19, uh, 2017, my friend, Bobby Allen, who's been a lifelong friend or a career-long friend, went to the same fire academy together. He was the one that relieved me that morning. And after I left, my crew would come to him and said, dude, Jared, he is not acting right. Something's going on with him. And he called me and he goes, where are you going? I go, I don't know. Like usually I'd be like, oh, I'm going surfing. I'm going home. But I was just like, I don't know. And he goes, dude, don't go home. He's like, either come back to the station or go get some help. Do not go home. Get, get help. Stay where you are. I'll come and get you. And I go, no, dude, I'll go to my doctor. I know something's going on. Went to my doctor. Without an appointment, I just sat in the office for a couple hours until they could get me in. My doctor recognized something was going on and uh, wrote me off post-traumatic stress, 30 days whatever, refer me to some psychological services or whatever. And so I thought I was good. Like, okay, I, I'm going to get some time. Patty and I were working on our relationship. So we're kind of mending things. Um, but this like brought a whole, and I, I know that she was grieving for me because I was, I didn't know. I mean, I was taking it on that it was my fault. Like how long did that, did my delay of search kill her? Did my 
uh, lack of focusing, putting the fire out, allow that boy to sit in that hallway? Did me crawling back and forth three times on that boy cause him to die? Did I crush him? Like those things thousand times a minute. And then every other call that it was like a flood of shit. Just it was unreal. Um, and then about 10 days into it, I get a phone call from risk management saying, uh, all the days that you've had off so far, we're not going to cover them. They're unauthorized leave. Um, we're not going to pay you or we need to set up a QME qualified medical examination. So it's like, what does this mean? So I'm not getting a paycheck tomorrow. No. Okay. And that's the, that's, that's where really the downward spiral for me started really spiraling down. So now all this shit piled on top and now you're not going to pay me for risking my life to save the citizens that pay my salary. Fuck you. How can you can control my paycheck? They're the ones paying me, you know? And I just got angry. And then the anger from everything else that I had not no idea why I was angry about started coming out. And it was a it was a rough battle. It was hard. And that's when I started thinking of killing myself. Um that's when I started thinking of going after the people who weren't paying me. Like shit went in my mind that I'm not that guy. I'm not the guy to go hold the payroll hostage until they give me a fucking check. But that's what my mind was saying. Um, and it was rough three months before, before I got a paycheck. I can't think of any better way to put the final nail in the coffin of someone who's struggling mentally than to just do exactly what they did. You know, and again, you know, the best is what they had. Well, obviously, there was a cultural complete disconnect. But, you know, the, one of the biggest contributors I've seen in a lot of these conversations is the organizational stress element, you know, and that's just it. There's, there's the, you know, the lack of tools that you need, i.e. take some time, you'll get your checks, you know, here's, here's the resources for you as far as counselors that set something up. Um, but then you get, you know, that lack of tribes. You've been pulled out of that too. But not only are you now not, amongst your tribe part of what you thought your tribe now you've been thrown out you know so um you know like you were saying way at the beginning about the uh the football team you yeah know, and, and uh you said it was uh, i got that right yeah with the uh, maddie with the oh that's right football, yeah, yeah. With, with the the school bus guy mm -hmm. yeah same thing you yeah, know what i mean my so, first taste of politics bro and that's i i never thought as as a new firefighter i always thought in my mind that if I get hurt or something happens to me, I'm going to be fucking taken care of. Oh yeah. They're going to take care of me, man. Well, it, <laughs> it, you know, I've had two surgeries on the job. I had a shoulder reconstruction and knee surgery and they were easy. Like the surgery was physically hard. The rehabilitation, the separation from the job was hard, but the, I got injured. They're going to give me a check and pay for my surgery and my rehab. I didn't have to, I didn't even think twice about it. And then my knee, same thing. My back injury, I didn't have surgery, but I had epidural, like the same 
process. It was, I didn't even have to think about it. The city just said, okay. But here, it, it they, and like, like you keep referring, they did the best they could. I started looking up like city charter and like, where's the rules? Where's the regulation? And they're, and they were dated from the seventies saying that mental illness or mental stress and anxiety is not a re, uh, a compensatable or retireable problem. Since 1978, I think was when I read that I, when I looked up city ordinance on that and because I trust me, I, I mean, I hired an attorney, you know, I'm like, we got to fix this problem. Um, that's when I wrote letters of the fire chief. I didn't get anywhere with that. Um, it's an understatement. <laughs> yeah. I, I, mean, I don't want to throw anybody more. under the bus, but I really felt abandoned. Mm-hmm. Um, my friend Bobby called me out. He's the one that made the phone call, which we all need to be courageous because I could have just said, fuck you. And then got mad at him and never talked to him again, but I didn't, I listened. Um, but really it was quiet from the department, from my tribe, from the people who I have bled with. It was quiet. There was, and 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 the thing that I really want to hit home on is that quietness isn't because I'm just out of the picture or I was away. The quietness is, is nobody knows what to say or what to hear, right? Because sometimes listening is more powerful than saying something when somebody's in crisis. Like, I can't tell you how to feel. Oh, sorry, bro. I've been there. You know? Right. No. That's about holding space. I hear you. Right. Yeah. And we don't, we don't train that shit. (laughs) No. Right. We don't train this shit. We don't train it at all. But, but we need to start doing that. Yeah. We need to start training it because, because guys need to hold, to know how to hold space for each other. Yeah. And, 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 and they're, they're, they're scared. It's not because nobody wanted right. to call. Or it's like, or it's like, I don't want to get what he's got, you right. know? And I fucking understand that, right? Yeah. Just like you do. But I felt the same way you did. Yeah. I felt like I was a band. I remember having a conversation with Dickie, you know, when I wasn't going out to the gym and working out and doing the things I used to do. And I remember him telling me, dude, I, I, I don't even know who the fuck you are anymore, Maddie. Who are you? And I remember thinking to myself, like, I don't, I don't even know, dude. I don't know, bro. I know my back hurts. I know I'm going through all this shit at home. I'm fucking tired of telling the same story. I don't know, bro. Like I, you know, and knowing some of the things I was doing to dissociate, right. And just wanting somebody that I could just tell everything to. I just wanted to you know? have my injury acknowledged. Yeah. Like that's really, I mean, I just wanted to be, how, how do you, how do you reward people who work for the company? You pay them, right? right? You give them good benefits, right? You want to value an employee. You 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 make sure that their service is compensated for what they're worth. You know, I didn't feel that. Felt completely abandoned. Um, uh, you know, uh, some of the guys refer to me as the guy, the crazy guy on the job. You know, and, and I'm I can't even imagine what the talk was. 
when I was gone or even now. Um, so fast forward, went through QME. City did not pay me for my first, like when the first QME doctor, which was on December 17th, um, when they received that and uh, they did not acknowledge it. So they sent me to another QME in January. And if you take those two reports and put them side by side, written by two different doctors who never met each other, they were almost word for word exactly the same. And so once the city decided to accept my case, I took another three weeks off after that to just kind of, okay, you know, and I've been doing a lot of self-care work trying to get to that point. I had my two suicide attempts shortly after they did not, the, that, that response from the fire chief and the letter of denial of benefits. Um, and, uh, when I finally went back to work, one of my first shifts, I was working at Station 11, about 7, 8 o'clock at night. A little dark already is wintertime. Uh, we had structure fire. The notes almost verbatim, possible victims trapped. And as we're going, I'm good. Like, I've been able to work through it. I've been doing EMDR. You know, I, I, I'm feeling pretty good. The guy in the back seat, bless his heart, is a good friend of mine. I've known him since he was really young. Um an unfortunate circumstance, but one of one of my reserve firefighters at the first department I worked for was killed in an accident and they were friends. And so, and that was 22, 23 years prior. Um, so we're going to a fire, which turned out to be a working fire. He's in the back seat going, Hey, cheese, are you good? And, and I got a little upset. I'm like, if I wasn't fucking good, I wouldn't be here. Let's go to work. And I turned around and went to the fire. We put ladders up. We got on the roof. We cut holes. Luckily, there was nobody trapped or injured in the fire. But we did our work. But the fact that that, that stigma of once you're injured, you're no good. Once your brain, once you're back, once you're, you're, you're done, you're no good. Is something that we need to change also in the culture because you can recover from post-traumatic stress. You know, you might have to work at it the rest of your life. You might have to do physical therapy or mental therapy. Like if you get a bad back, what do you got to do? Right. right. Foundation training. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. There you yeah. go. I've been doing it. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? I'm walking. So yeah, I've, one, I've got eight, 100%. eight degenerative discs and like four bulging right now. So well, that that's how it, in there, but. yeah, that's how it has to be looked at right now. It's a brain injury. Yeah. And there's, and, and, like when you break your arm, you rehab, you've, you get your treatment, you rehab your arm and you go back to work, you know, and that's definitely the way we need to start looking at it because, you know, it's, it's not getting any better. It's only getting worse. And our suicide epidemic that's going on is that has to stop. Like that cannot, that cannot continue. So it's like, right. And and I know in the fire service are very reactive to things, right. We just don't do anything let's not change it until something fucking catastrophic happens. But it's like, it's, it's about time we need to start looking at it like that. And, 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 um, it is, you know, I, I felt that way a little bit, um, being looked at like I was weak or crazy or, you know, and, um, and that's, that's a tough one. That's a tough one to deal with too. When you're, when you're in the midst of it, it's like, okay, I guess I am fucked up or whatever. (laughs) Like, 
I don't know. You just want to throat punch everybody. <laughs> yeah. And I was very good at that. Yeah, I probably yeah, could too. pull those skills out if I needed to, <laughs> but I haven't had to for a long time because right, exactly. I've been really like working on that. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you, since we had the, the incident with Ben and Alex stabbing on our job and then myself, and then while I was in the mix of it, another captain was going through it. Um, our city risk management and our health and safety office have really kind of listened and they can't put programs in overnight, but over the last three years that they've been working and building our behavioral health program, it's amazing. I mean, we have a streamlined process now to get guys directly and gals directly into treatment if requested. We have focused psychological services, which is free to me, our family, for the rest of our lives and our parents, um, just by being a member of our fire department. You know, so on one hand, the city doesn't compensate us very well financially, but on the other hand, we have to look at the the benefits that we're that we're getting. You know, um, yeah, they do a good job down there, and yeah, I, I, like. I, I'm out in the world right now, you know, helping. We do, we actually do, um, Dr. Odom and I, um, do, um, some work with other departments, um, both law enforcement and fire and helping them build algorithms into their, into their, you know, um, policies and procedures as to what to do when guys ask for help. You know, peer support's a big thing right now. We're talking about peer support and like, it's, let's put these peer support teams in it. But what do you do with your people when they fucking ask for help? Right. So how do we get, how do they get the time off? How are they getting paid? How are they getting, where, where you needed, where are you taking them? They need to be good, vetted, culturally competent places. And, um, and doing consulting for these, for these agencies. And definitely some, some don't, don't have anything in place and need help and are willing to take the help. Some are middle ground. Some, some are doing well and some have been kicking the can down on the road a little bit longer and doing well. Like San Diego, we, we work with them a lot. Um, and as, as a matter of fact, they just, we just did a training, um, on how to navigate the new presumptive law for, um, for post-traumatic stress and how do you, how, how to get your guys help. And they're, the, they're the front runners and they're doing a really good job on that, you know? And like in Anaheim, we're, we're getting there. You know, we're working on it, <laughs> but it's cool to be able to sit in those, conf those, those, um, those meetings. And it's cool to be, sit to, to sit in front of those people with, with brass and, and the support of Pat Russell, who's our fire chief, um, and have those conversations, you know, because it's not, we're talking about life or death here. You know, we're not talking about it. We're not talking about a broken arm. We're talking about a brain injured first responder who, you know, who we, if you look at this, at the numbers right now is going to be looking for the exit at some point, especially when they get treated like Jared was treated, you know? And like, like I said, I, I can, I can go back and, and, and want to be mad at those people. And that's part of, that was part of my healing too. Is like, Matt, you got to stop telling that same, same old story. Yeah. You got to move past it. You need to go build self-esteem by doing esteemable acts and go help the next person. And then that stuff will reframe itself. And it did. You know, I, in, in listening to George, Jared's story, it, it brings up, I'm like, yeah, I remember that happened when they did that, when this and this and this, and, but that was my story back then. It was like them, they, this, yeah, exactly. fuck that, you know, it was like, I'm the victim, just playing the victim role. And which was a trait that I, you know, that I developed as a kid too. It was like, you know, little emo Maddie, you know, 
Like, oh, wah, wah, wah. my life is so rough. My parents are fucked up. You know, whatever. I'm going to Hot Topic. Fuck you yeah, guys. Yeah, I'm going to go get a new uh, fucking Metallica shirt and sit here crabby. I don't know. But. No, it's brilliant. All right, well, then um, we'll wrap it up with talking about where we are now mm-hmm. and what you guys are doing. But do you, is there anything else you want to add to the story that brings you up to being about to go to Saw? Um, you know, we're all going to face tragedy throughout our career, whether it's watching people go through it or experiencing it ourselves. Um, I've had several people that work side by side with me, uh, die some long, hard deaths with cancer and several traumatic injuries. Um, and that, and right now, that's kind of one of the big things that I'm really processing and dealing with. About four months ago, an uh, engineer on our crew was killed in a motorcycle accident. That morning, we got off shift, and we we're, we we're actually doing um, the Braden workout, the July 18th. Remember that workout for Uncle Hoffie's uh, nephew that died in the drunk driving accident? So that morning we're at our station, just got off shift. Um, Ryan had just worked with me uh, on the truck the day before and we jumped around and whatever. And he went to go work out with his dad, which he does every Saturday. His dad does this like fit body boot camp. His dad's a stud, you know, he's like 70 and just still awesome. And um, so we did the Braden workout, which was in honor of Braden, who lost his life in a drunk driving accident uh, to bring awareness. And then uh, Ryan came back to get in his ice bath. I still have the picture on my phone of him just zen and out in that ice bath. And that was the last time I saw him. You know, I left the station. I go, see you tomorrow, bro. And I didn't see him tomorrow. Um, he died in a drunk driving accident that night uh, as a passenger on a motorcycle. And our crew is still grieving that. And it's still super hard to deal with. Um, so that just to wrap it up that that's like what I'm that and going to saw bringing up the stuff. I have no idea what to, what to expect or look for. Matt gave me a little glimpse as he's interviewing you today of what, or as he was interviewing you. But, but that's, uh, I'm really look like want to be open and, and go forward because, uh, I'm really tired of hurting and feeling sad. And I'm really tired of how it puts it on my family and watch them go through it. It's not fair to them. Didn't happen to them. And, uh, you know, it's just a happen to circumstance. I'm not poor Jared. I'm a victim. That's not where I'm trying to go. Um, I was there, but I'm not now. And got to move forward. There's no other option but to move forward. Well, what you're talking about as well with with this all being viewed as a weakness, I think what people need to understand is that when you get through it, and I've witnessed with you, with Matty, like with my own fucking eyes, because one minute doing the dark side video and you're in tears on your bed, next minute I can still see it clearly. I'm looking around a house, a new build that we were considering buying, and you call me talking about this saw. I'm like, what the fuck is he talking about? That, that horror movie where they all chop up people? Yeah. Um, 
And, uh, you know, but it was a complete turnaround and obviously that stayed as well, which is a huge thing. But the post-traumatic growth, like as I wrote about in the book, after I did the foundation training route and the therapy route and the chiropractic route, my back was stronger than ever. You know, it's the same with this. Once you work through it, you will be a better firefighter, a better police officer. So by stigmatizing it and call people that go through it a pussy, it's the same way as saying to a football player, eh, you don't need to lift weights. You know, we'll just figure it out when we get on the field. No, you want to be the best version. Yeah. And it, but it's like you've done the lifting the weights, but now you've got to have the sleep yes. to gain the size, the strength, you know, the, the connective tissue resiliency to move forward and that's all we're asking with the mental health that's why these men and women need the time off to process it because you will have a better employee if you give them the time to work through this and come out the other side and as i see so often just like with matt you now have a freaking fired up advocate who will be a beacon and draw all the other people that are hurting out and 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 pull them out too um you, you talked about sleep we really didn't talk a lot about it during this interview, but to me, looking back, like I was talking to Dr. O and you guys earlier, Dr. Odom, is that a 25 years have probably been awake for 12 of those years, um, and not sleeping. And, uh, and we kind of, we're looking at the numbers now of suicide and post-traumatic stress and the other ailments that are coming, but, Look at what, what we've done over the last 25 years. We've tripled all call volume. The, 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 the four stations that were super busy out of the 50 in San Diego are now 25 stations running over 20 calls a day. The others running 10. Yeah, even the mid-range ones. There's still the mid- a lot compared to a right. lot of places. And, and when are those calls? Right? The night. They're in the middle of the night. And, and I, I, I don't... I didn't want to rob it on the sleep, but that is, if you ask me why we're seeing such an influx in behavioral health issues is the amount of workload that we've been put on ourselves with the same work schedule. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I mean you've come to the right place. You're preaching to the choir. Cause yeah. I mean, that's, you know, a huge, the, the drug prohibi- prohibition as far as crime and everything we see out there. Yeah. And then the sleep deprivation and the shift world, like there is no way around it. But we have to go, I mean, bare bones to 24, uh, 72. You know, at least then that's bringing everyone into one, one group. But Anaheim, 56, no Kelly. You know, you wonder why people, I mean, I was sat with my crew yesterday, all physically broken, all definitely mentally broken as well. We're on the same schedule. Yeah. We're on that same schedule. Fours and sixes. Yeah. Fours and sixes. No, we used to have floating holidays. We used to get those, but. They took those away from us. Exactly. So we need to reprogram that again. You know, it's not weakness. It's yeah. I'll sleep while I'm dead. Yes, you will. And your lifespan will be so much shorter than yeah, a you'll civilian. Get, you'll get you'll get to death faster mm-hmm. if yeah. you don't sleep. Yeah, it's just it's especially when you yeah, when you're there for so many days, it's crazy. Like I remember when I was in the thick of it thinking like this is like prison, except I get to wear a cool uniform and this thing. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, I got people telling me when to eat, what to wear, when to be da 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 and I'm going out on these calls and and I'm not getting any sleep and God, I, you know, I'll go work at McDonald's, yeah. you know, so maybe I see my kids a little bit. And I, I remember saying that to a, to Tim Sandifer, you know, I'm like, I'm sitting in front of my, my locker going, I'm not putting the uniform on. And he's like, dude, what's wrong? I'm like, I can't do it. 
I, you know, I'm not seeing my kids. I'm trapped here. I'm all my money's going to the ex-wife. Yeah. Like, I, I don't want to do it anymore. He's like, put your uniform on, bro. Fake it one more day. We'll get through it. And I'm like, I've been faking it for three years, dude. I'm, I'm fucking done. You know, thank God for that, man. He really helped me a lot. And a lot came out of that day, but you know, it's crazy. It is. Yeah. All right. Well, what you signed up for. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> McDonald's is hiring. Fucker. <laughs> I'm about to go make uh nuggies. <laughs> No, but I have to say, just just before we transition to to the center that you have here, um, mm-hmm. as someone who retired two years ago, and I want to say retired, people are like, "Oh, you collect a check?" No, I reinvested my my retirement into what we're doing right now, um, so none of it is left. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I had the realization. I think I've mentioned this on on air before, but twenty four forty eight, the repeating threes that we have. Um, I realized that I'd only woken up next to my wife one out of three days and only woken, had breakfast with my son one out of three days because the first day you're up before them and then the, the day after shift you get back and they're all off at school, off at work. And it was like, fuck, I've only spent a third of my, my life with my family my, yeah. since we've been together. And it's a sobering thought because, like I told you, this, oh, one on, two off, we fucking, we got to stop saying that. In our, hour 2448, it's, Three on, one off. That's what it is. Three eight-hour days crammed together, bleed into that second day. So you have one day off of which you're getting up at five, four, whatever you're doing because you can't afford to live in the city that you work in. Right. And you're driving your ass back. Exactly. So, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. And Preaching to the choir. I mean, I'm on a six-day right now, and, and I don't work that much overtime anymore. I, used to, I mean, my whole career, I worked a ton of overtime. Which is another coping mechanism I see all the time. Oh, totally. Guys just work and work and work, so yeah. it fills that void, and they don't have to think. Exactly. And then and we're trying to keep up with the Joneses and all these material solutions to spiritual problems, and we're really good at it, you know, and we got to keep up with all that stuff. Well, I... I uh, don't work much overtime. I'm on a six day right now. Obviously, I'm at the treatment center all my days off because I love to do this. It's not work. And um, and I got to go to bed with my wife every night and wake up with her every morning. Dude, there's like, like, it's pretty awesome. And that's what everyone else takes for granted. Right. You know what I mean? So yeah. that's my thing is we've got two options. We either change the way we do the fire service to the point where these men and women can thrive like we do with Navy SEALs, like we do with your favorite NFL players and MLB and NBA and all these other acronyms that treat their people right. Right. <laughs> or we just say, oh, let's keep doing the same shit and have it like the military. You know, four years, yeah, I'm going to transition out because I'm already fucking exhausted. Right. That's fine. Let's do it. Let's keep it the way it is. And every four years, you've got to retrain a bunch of people because there's no experience in your department. That's what you want. Beautiful. But if Maybe we invest in our people, create enough rest and recovery between shifts, and you have the twenty-year person, you know. So, but I mean, it's one or the other. We have very few of those on our job anymore. They come to San Diego, we train them up, then they go to Orange County, LA City, Anaheim, or LA County. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's where they go. It's a revolving door. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. There's, it's you know, I think. The culture's changing. I hope it is. I think there are a lot of people out there that are out there telling their stories or getting honest about what's really going on. And, and I think maybe that eventually that old school mentality will leave with, you know, with some of the crusty, salty guys and, and, um, and we can start getting down to business on how we can get better. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, you mentioned the treatment center. So mm-hmm. let's uh, talk about that. Tell me about your journey in and then, uh, 
you know, we'll just expand from there. Okay. Um, let's see. I, uh, I came down, um, I, I, after I left Civil Warrior, like I said, I was, um, I, uh, was asked by the clinician, Shauna, um, who I wasn't seeing anymore because I was kind of off doing my own thing, doing 12 steps. She'd ask me to kind of teach guys to meditate. And then I would do that. And then Save a Warrior would set up a booth. Um, and I'd go stand in the booth and collect money because <laughs> it's all donation. And, and, uh, people would ask me what's Save a Warrior. And I would just start talking to them and talk, start telling my story. I started telling my story in 12 step meetings. And, and so, um, I, uh, was able to go back and shepherd for Save a Warrior, which I loved um, doing. And I tell my story there in gnarly detail, like stuff that I can't say right here because I would probably lose my job. Um, but stuff that those guys need to hear. They need to hear exactly what I was doing because it was gnar, bro. Yeah. And they'll see themselves in that. Exactly. And so um, I just, I got, I got kind of good at it at doing it and um and it was really effective and I was getting better and I was working my program and so a friend of mine um Tiffany Atala Hernandez who's married to uh Mark Hernandez who works for Anaheim Fire is a friend of mine um she reached out to me because she knew she kind of heard through the grapevine some of the things I was doing through the counseling team like um I would go uh and teach the alcohol portion of their their uh peer support classes and she said I I've got this, um, I'm working part-time at this treatment center. Um, it's first responder only. And, um, and they have this vision. I want you to come down here and start an AA meeting and, uh, for first responders only. And I was like, okay, I'll come down and check it out. Yeah, it sounds good. You know, and I came down here and I met, I met Dr. Odom. I, I, he told me his vision. Uh, they had a couple clients, um, and he had worked with, uh, special populations for a long time and he was really good at it. And, uh, and then I got to know him and got to know why he was doing it. He's doing it for all the right reasons. Um, and he treated me like an equal, you know, he really valued my opinion. He valued, um, what, what I, um, what we kind of discussed about what the, what would be a value to the program, what would be really helpful. And we built this relationship and this friendship. And I'm like, I'm like, okay, I'll do this meeting, um, which turned out to just be a support meeting. Um, because I had people coming in going, you know, I'm not really an alcoholic, but I need, I can use some support for post-traumatic stress. So me and a Torrance police officer and a Cal fire, um, uh, firefighter put together, um, a, a format for the meeting, which is, we just took some AA, some ACA, some resiliency stuff. And we put this format together. Um, we started this meeting, um, here in Costa Mesa, um, at the treatment center, I'm sorry, Newport beach. We used to be in Costa Mesa and, um, and it's, uh, every Wednesday at 1230 and, uh, we follow a format. It's, it's, uh, really effective. And I was able to hand it off to Jared. Jared started one down in Vista and, um, and everywhere we go. Um, and I'll put this out there for anybody who wants to get a hold of me. Um, I will freely give you the, uh, the format and tell you the do's and don'ts and you can go off and try and start one on your own, but they're all over now, which is really cool because people have, and, um, we have an online one, but, um, I tell you all that to say that I, I wanted to do more here and I wanted to get Dr. Odom in front of the right people. You know, when it comes to first responders, we're, you know, we're, we're, you have to, you have to be vouched for, you know, we're just, and I, and I love that. Like when it comes to my brothers and sisters in service, like I'm not fucking around when it comes to what, what, um, vetted, um, places we have for people to go and, and people that people are doing what they're say what they say they're doing. 
Uh, it's not a treatment center that says, hey, we're treating first responders, and then they take you and put you with the gen pop, and maybe you have one group with maybe another another first responder. Like, we are first responder only. Um, and we got, we just went out in the world and started started talking about what we're doing. Um, I think we had three or four clients when um, when I started here two years ago, and we have 35 now. And we're 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 growing. Um, I'm really proud of what we have going on here. We have everyone's culturally competent. Even I mean, down to our you know, case managers, they're married to a first responder, or they have first responder parents, or someone's. Everybody that's here is in some way connected. Um, and um, and so uh, I go off and do business development um, for the treatment center, which which brought me to kind of the, the consulting stuff out there trying to pitch this stuff. Um, we got really good at, at, um, helping, like I said, we'd go to a place to talk about the treatment center and the chief would be like, we don't even have a peer support team. Like how do we build algorithm? You know what I mean? So that's how the consulting thing happened. And, and from there, um, I, uh, Dr. Odom and I, he's done family groups for a long time. I'm always talking about save a warrior. Obviously I, I love that program. Um, you know, some of, some of my best friends, Jeff Henson, Mark Lima, uh, Brian Haggerty, obviously Jake, um, Adam Carr. I mean, these, these men are like, like I said, the loves of my life and my mentors. And I, I spent a lot of time with them picking their brains and learning about this stuff. So, um, I got, I had a, because my wife went to save a warrior. Um, I had a lot of the spouses calling me going, Hey, you know, so-and-so is back from Saul. They're doing great. Um, but I've been taking care of this mofo and the kids and the house and the finances for the last 10 years. How about me? Can I come to save a warrior? And I was having to turn them away and it was heartbreaking, you know? So Dr. Odom, myself, Tiffany, um, and Shauna Hill and my wife put together, um, what we call the sage retreat, which is the, is, uh, uh, it's a spouse's retreat. It's, it's very similar to Saul, but more, um, there's clinicians there obviously, um, and it's the kinder, gentler, you know, we, they, these women come thinking they're going to learn how to deal with us and pretty much figure out that they have to seal their own mask before they can, before they can help anybody else. And the plot thickens, you know, we, we talk about ACEs scores and trauma, we trauma bond and our, our spouses usually are drawn to us. Oh, mine is. Right. Yeah, yeah mine, me too. Mine is a lot. Yeah, me too. And, uh, and so we help, yeah. So we help point, point these women, uh, in the right direction. And I'm, I'm super, super proud of that. We have, we have them bi-monthly right now. We're still trying to get it, kind of get it off the ground. There's a cost associated with that, but, um, it's very low. Um, from there, I, like I said, I, I went to, I would go, my buddy from Huntington beach fire called me, um, and was like, Hey, can you come tell your story at the, at our fire Academy, which was like five guys, um, and I'm like, yeah, no problem. I'll come down there and speak. And, and so Dave saw me and he's like, Hey, Dave, um, the Sabo, the one that trained me, um, he's like, we want to come in and talk to the fire Academy. I'm like, okay. And the chief happened to be that there one day. And, and, um, and then I was there two days and then, um, uh, their, their head of, of the, um, uh, fire tech program. Um, she sat in the class and she's like, she gave me a call the next day. I was at work and she's like, why don't you come in? We want to talk to you. And I'm like, okay. But all I have is my board shorts and my flip flops. Like she's like, just come in. And I got hired 
by the by the by the fire academy by the Santa Ana College to teach mental health in my board shorts and my flip flops. I mean, this is how my life has been unfolding. It's like amazing, you know. Um, uh, let's see what else. I have like five jobs. It's crazy. I'm I'm really busy, um, but it's good, you know. I, I'm really like if you haven't noticed, super passionate about this stuff. Um, uh, I've put together some training, Dr. Odom and I, and we've we've done the training all over. Um, as a matter of fact, I was super bummed. I, I, I spoke in Arizona and there were some, some guys from, um, FDNY there from the terror, their terrorist task force. And you know, those guys, bro, they're like, I, I love those guys back there. And they just came up to me and they're like, bro, like, I can't believe you're fucking saying all that shit. Like, what, like talking to, you know, cause there's like all these chiefs and shot callers in there and like the shit that was coming out of your mouth, bro. I fucking like who, you know, and I was, they're like, we got to get you out, out to, uh, to New York. So we had some stuff that was planned before COVID to go do that. And, and obviously that fell through. So just to go out there and talk to those guys, that's like, you know, super cool. So, um, I had a friend reach out recently from, um, that works at the orange County family justice center. Um, she's on the board of trustees and I was asked, um, to be the first firefighter on the, on the board of trustees for the orange County family justice center. Um, so I'm doing that now, which I'm super proud of because that's obviously they take, abused women and, and children and help them. And, and because of the work I do, um, and the speaking I do about childhood trauma and, um, they brought me in on that. So I just recently got, to, got to do that. They personally asked the fire chief and, you know, you're talking about a guy who was in bed, like using and drinking every day and wanted to kill himself. And now people are asking me to do all these amazing things, you know? Um, I, uh, I'm, I just, my friend, Amy, Amy Morgan, she has a company, um, called Academy Hour and, um, and, um, certified, uh, she certifies clinicians to work with first responders. She has a certification program and, um, she's asked me to, uh, to do some stuff with them too. And, um, that's really cool. Super cool. Cause a culturally competent clinician essentially got me to save a warrior and save my life. And we know how important that is. So, um, and she's got online, um, training for uh, mental health. So, I mean, and then I'm a father and a, and a husband and I hope I'm a pretty good one. You know, I do my best. Um, but, uh, my kids like me, I think for the most part and my <laughs> wife does so, as of right now. So, but, um, yeah, uh, I get, I get to do a lot out there and, and, um, I'm hoping to retire, um, soon. <laughs> I got like five years left, but, um, so I can just go off in the world and do all this stuff that I'm doing. Um, I made a few investments lately and I'm, my prayer is that, that these investments pay off so well that I can donate, um, all my retirement to mental health for first responders. So Beautiful. that's the plan. Now, how for people listening, how can they possibly send their people to the treatment center? Um, let's see. Uh, they can give me a call or um, reach out. Um, my uh, it's oh the uh, website. Um, just go to First Responder Wellness. Um, it's First Responder Wellness dot com, and um, the treatment center. Um, they just reach out, you know, or give me a call, reach out to me. Um, I, uh, let's see, I'm on fireman. Maddie is my Instagram page. Um, uh, Matt Fiorenza or Matthew Fiorenza on Facebook. Anyway, you know, there's lots of ways to reach out, but, um, but definitely, um, if you have somebody that's, that's struggling and needs, 
Um, and we're co-occurring both post-traumatic stress and drug and alcohol mental health. So it's not, it's not one or the other. And we understand here that, that there's a thing under the thing under the thing when it comes to how guys are numbing out and it's, it's the post-traumatic stress. So we do a really good job here. So beautiful. Yep. And then Save a Warrior, savealwarrior.org. Yeah, right? Save a Warrior, www.savealwarrior.org. Uh, you just fill out the application. You'll hear from somebody within a couple a couple of days, 48 hours at the latest, and um, and they'll have a conversation with you to see if you're a candidate. But that's free. The only thing you pay for is the uh, your travel expenses. So, yeah. Yeah, good good organization. So that, just the two together are, are um, it's I think it's the perfect formula. You know, we, a lot of the folks that come here to the treatment center, um, about 60, close to 90 days into their treatment, we, they go to save a warrior and they come back and they get to process that stuff that, that, that happened there. And then, and it's just, and it's all word of mouth too. You know, we don't advertise really at save a warrior. If we did, we'd have, yeah. So, but we, Jake's doing a good job. The board of directors and is doing a really good job. Um, Adam Carr is doing a really good job to make sure that um, they're they're opening a new center for excellence in, in Ohio um, so that we can get, you know, we have the funding, it's self-supporting, and that we can get more people through. Beautiful. And that's the idea. What about in Ohio is it going to be? It's like, hmm. uh, gosh, I, the center for excellence, I don't want to mess that up, but I know like Licking County is where Warrior Village is now. We have a spot now. The The center for excellence is... Near Columbus somewhere, I think. I don't okay. want to mess. Jake's right. going to be like, dude, <laughs> <laughs> you better get that right if you want to talk about it. All right. Well, Jared, just for people, if they want to reach out to you, how do they find you online? Um, so you can reach me on Instagram under Cheese Whizzle. Um, one of my <laughs> live. <laughs> I love I've got like whistle. six nicknames. Uncle Cheddar, <laughs> Cheese Whizzle, Cheese, whatever. Um, you can reach me there. Um my email is Jared, J-A-R-E-D, Chiselski, C-H-E-S-E-L-S-K-E, at gmail.com. Um, I'm available. Uh, I have friends uh, that call. I've actually fielded a lot of calls. Um, people have gotten the flyer for the meeting. My number's on it for our meeting in Vista. Um and if I can answer my phone, I will. And so <clears throat> I think that's a important. I'm pretty big advocate for what we're doing within our department as well as others. Um, my wife just recently took the peer support spousal training. Um, I don't think she needed it because she already learned it firsthand through me for the last, we've been married 24 and a half years. Um, but she went through so she could have her certificate um, and is working with Dave Pacone, a San Diego Fire Department wellness officer, on starting a first responder spousal group as well. Because I think sometimes we focus so much on us and our healing that we re <laughs> really forget about the people that have experienced the aftermath of our trauma, which sometimes is catastrophic for them too. So especially our children and our wives and, and uh, significant others. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, I want to wrap it up and thank you guys, people listening. In a second, you're going to hear Jared post-saw. So it's going to be an interesting you know, transition. <laughs> but for now, in this, yeah. this present day, 
Thank you so much. I mean, thank you for your vulnerability and your courage to tell your story. That's what people need to hear. I see the responses. You know, I have some very famous people on the show and their, their episodes are well received, but it's the people that, you know, tell the tales that you have today. Like truly be, you know, um, transparent and, and, you know, hold the mirror up and really look into your eyeballs and, you know, find that real truth that's connecting with people. Simple as that. So thank you both for A, showing me around the center and then B, you know, letting me hear your stories today. All right. So for everyone listening, this is the second part of the interview. It is now December 22nd. So we're about to get to Christmas. Um, and Jared is in San Diego and I'm back in Florida. So we're doing this over Skype now. Um, so firstly, um, welcome back to the uh, podcast, Jared. <laughs> Nice, uh, nice uh, talk with you again, James, and thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right. So, I guess the 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 thing we want to do now. I know that when we did the discussion, it was you and Matty together. You know, it was a different dynamic. Um, and then since going through Save a Warrior, I know speaking to Jake and some of the other guys that are associated with it, a lot more tends to surface once you've been through as well. So. I know there's some kind of gaps that you wanted to plug as far as when we sat down together. And then after that, I'd love you to lead me through, you know, the, the, the beginning of, of your spiral and then, and then bring us into Save a Warrior. So I'm going to give you the mic and then, you know, obviously if I'll interject if you need, uh, any, <laughs> any direction, okay. but it's really, it's over to you now, mate. Okay. Thank you, James. Um, well, just kind of, just to bring everybody back up to speed. Um, I was born, uh, to a, uh, a codependent mother and a Vietnam veteran father. Um, very volatile in the home, even as an infant. Um, he left, and then my mom remarried several years later to another Vietnam veteran, and we all know how that war went. Um, pretty rough. And our household hadn't really changed at all. It was super rough. James, can you still hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, it, it, it was just, it was up and down. Um, Sometimes I felt like I was in a POW camp back in Vietnam and uh, my dad was the torturer and my mom was his uh, person that instilled the punishment when he wasn't there. He deployed back and forth uh, overseas a lot in my younger childhood from the time I was about 15. Uh, he was a Navy diver, supported the special operations community, and he was gone quite a bit. And when he'd come home, um, that's when the unleashing would happen. And you know, uh, that mixed with uh, uh, learning disability with uh, the dyslexia, I had a little hard time focusing and a lot of frustration as a younger, young kid. And, and like I shared in, in the first one too, uh, throw in um, about four years of molestation with uh, uh, two men uh, on our street and a woman. Over from the time I was about eight years old, seven ish, eight till the time I was about 12. Um, and, and that whole dynamic that comes with that. So <clears throat> when I was 19, I enlisted into, well, when I was 18, I enlisted in the United States Army. Um, my dad and I had still been pretty much at odds. I hadn't spoken with him for since I moved out when I was about 16, moved back in, moved back out. And uh, he was in the Navy. And so uh, the last, place I wanted to end up was in the Navy. So I joined the army um, and then went off to boot camp when I was 19. I was in the infantry 101st airborne and uh, it was a really um, positive experience for me. Um, I had some 
pretty strong male role models, which were something that I had never really recognized until um, later on in my life. Um, I served uh, in Operation Desert Shield and then in Operation Desert Storm um, with the 101st as we air assaulted into Iraq on February 24th, 1991, and uh, came home from that and got out of the military. I <clears throat> uh, worked construction and a bunch of odd jobs. I think my first job was at a vacuum cleaner repair shop. And uh, from there, I worked construction, digging ditches, worked my way up to running some equipment here and there in a dump truck. But um, just kind of odd jobs, not really, not really finding uh, any satisfaction in life. Um, spent some time on my motorcycle, spent a lot of time surfing um, and uh, doing just kind of up to no good kind of things. And I was just lost. One of my friends turned me on to uh, the fire service, had me out for lunch and ran a call, did a little ride along with him and met the fire chief. And I was like, wow, this is, I think I could get my hands, uh, get my mind wrapped around this. And so that kind of uh, led me into the fire service uh, 25 years ago this January. So it's pretty, pretty long haul there. Um, I worked for a small department in East County, San Diego, about two and a half years, uh, three years. And then I tested and moved my little family up to Salt Lake City. I got hired with Salt Lake City Fire Department in 1998. And then in 2001, I got hired back down with San Diego City Fire Department. And I've been there ever since. Um, coming up on my 20-year anniversary with them in January as well. And so I kind, that kind of, I'm a captain with San Diego City Fire, spent 17 years uh, as a backseater, and then a few as an engineer, and then the last eight as a uh, captain. And that kind of leads me to into the fire service to where I am now. Beautiful. All right, so so now we're up to speed with the recap, though. You mentioned about about three years ago that that you you know you had a change. So kind of walk us through that, and then bring us up to I guess when we sat down in San Diego. Okay, um, it, yeah, about three years ago, um, September two thousand seventeen, um, <clears throat> things I noticed that things weren't right, and they had been not right for a while. I was um, angry a lot, um, sad confused. Uh, I, I had really no feelings of emotion, which for me, uh, uh, as a very emotional person, um, it was a little odd. Um, and looking back on it now, um, we had a family friend that was killed in Afghanistan in 2010 on uh, my middle daughter's birthday. And that, that really hit me hard. Um, I had mentored him. He was a member of the 101st Airborne also. I helped him through the enlistment process. And I watched the, watched the young man grow up. And so that, that kind of hit me hard. And looking back on it now, that's where I really, really can kind of research back to where my mental health or uh, mental illnesses uh, started to develop. Um, well, obviously childhood, but that's when things started festering and manifesting in my life. Um, about three years ago, like I said, in September, 
I came to my wife and I just said, I'm just not well. Things are not well with me. They haven't been well for a long time. Um, I was contemplating suicide at the time. Um, and I had, uh, been a self-destructor for a lot of years, um, looking for adrenaline, looking for feeling, um, looking for those kind of things outside my marriage, uh, looking, just looking to feel. And that's about, that's about how all I could describe it is I was looking for feeling or some sort of belonging that I wasn't, that I wasn't getting. Um, and I was feeling very, very lonely. And I, so I, I just, I just offloaded everything, um, on that day in September. Um, it was a shock to my family, shock to my wife. Um, and so we decided that I should enter into counseling and I'd never really, uh, had done any kind of counseling before. And so, uh, I started seeing a therapist and started working through things. And it was more like me talking, her listening. Um, and it really felt good to like really offload or at least talk about things in detail that were, that were on my mind and really battling with my soul. Um, and then on, uh, so I took some time off. I took most of the month of October off. This happened in late September. And so I just need to reset. So I took uh, seven shifts off. I came back to work in October, um, on October 27th, um, worked a 24 hour, 27, 28. And then on October 29th of that year, 2017, we responded to a house fire, um, standard house fire. Uh, but as I got to the notes, um, I read in the notes that, uh, possible victims trapped. And we see that on the MDC all the time. Um, it's, you know, neighbors calling the, in the middle of the night, they're assuming people are home. Um, and on occasion we do find some people inside the home. Um, I would say the majority of our fires, people are outside. Um, so when we pulled up at scene, there was a heavy fire coming from, uh, a condo complex, second story, um, what looked like a balcony and a bedroom window. And I was just on engine 42, San Diego city. And I was assigned fire attack. And then, uh, <clears throat> as soon as we signed fire attack, uh, we got up there, started making our way up to back up engine 33 and the reports of a victim came in and it was a male. So I had ordered the, the guys to remove the victim and take them out and get the medics on board with them. And then, uh, so I was upstairs by myself. So I picked up the hose line and advanced it down the hallway, um, got caught, whatever. Um, it was a little hot up there and, uh, I was waiting for my firefighters to come back me up again. And uh, so I went back across that hallway three or four times, um, pulling hose and it was warm. It wasn't untenable yet. And, um, my firefighter, so I got the line in into the main body of the fire, started knocking it down. Um, and I realized that the, the, the room of origin and the hallway were completely uh, in, unsurvival. So I figured, okay, let's make this problem go away. Let's put the fire out. <clears throat> we got a victim. There was no signs that there was any other victims in the house. Um, and then 
as my firefighter came back me up, um, I was kneeling down the hallway. He said, Hey, I have a victim. And I go, where at? And he said, you're on, you're kneeling on him. And so I was kind of okay. And I looked down, I got real down close and basically put my face piece on the back of what appeared to be a young child's uh, neck and back and head. And so I slid him back, ordered him to go back and take him outside. And at that moment, uh, at that point, that's when my senses started going off a little bit and my little haste of, okay, we found a, a male, we just found a child or what appeared to be a child. Who else is in the house? Where's mom? Where's sister, brother? So I left the hose line and started making a search, went to the bedroom to my right and did a left-handed search. As I came to the bunk bed, I reached, hastily swept the top bunk. And as I swept the bottom bunk, I found another child, um, an eight-year-old girl lying there. Um, as I got close to her, I could see that she was just lying there. It looked, appeared to be having some sort of stuffed animal under her arm and uh, some soot around her mouth and nose and her eyes were closed. So I grabbed her, <clears throat> cradled her and crawled across the floor, got her downstairs and handed her off. When I picked her up, I heard what I thought was a breathing. Um, so when I handed her off, I felt pretty comfortable that we had made a save. Um, we continued with the overhaul. And then as we went out to change bottles, I got a glimpse uh, back behind the tailboard of Engine 33. They're doing CPR on someone. Um, and it, as I got a better look, it was actually two firefighters doing CPR on both the children. Um, and the dad was sitting on the tailboard watching it. Um, that that kind of shook me a little bit right then. Um, but like we do, you know, okay, we got a job to do. We got to get in here. We got to overhaul. We got to get a secondary search going. Um, and and that was that was it. And then about nine o'clock in the morning, as we were finishing up, um, there was arson investigators showing up. Um, we did a little interview with the police and um then then with a detective we walked through the the residence again and kind of play by play what we found um all we didn't know the outcome of the children they had been transported um and the father had been transported um <clears throat> the word we got where they were both breathing and then uh critical the icu and the one boy that we had found uh who was burnt uh, pretty bad was in the burn unit but they were breathing so we get relieved. We go back to the station and everybody goes off their merry way. Um, no debriefing, no, no anything. And um, as I was driving home, I was like overtaken with this incredible grief. And uh, I had, I had, um, like I said, I had been to so many fires throughout my career and had, seen children pass and people pass and burn this particular one hit me like a ton of bricks and um so i went home and i uh i didn't share it right away but my wife said what's going on and i i told her and it was it was heartbreaking knowing that we're what we we're already going through um for this and then uh, during this time and then this to happen um and so uh I was home alone with my wife. My children were off uh, with the neighbors. And so I was able to sit there and we talked about it. And um, 
she's really good about listening, which has been one of the saving graces, I think, is she has so much patience. Um, but then over the next couple of days, James, I, I really started to like physically spin, like, like in my mind, I was so spinning on this incident and everything and feeling like the ceiling was caving in that it was physically hard to walk, physically hard to breathe, physically hard to sleep. I could, I, I didn't sleep for several days, um, after and went to work and then Halloween hit. Um, and I'm at work on Halloween and the children running around with candy coming up to the station. And, you know, I barricaded myself in my room that night and uh, the next day I get in my truck and I go home and about 10 minutes later, I get a phone call and, you know, I had not slept for three days and I was, you know, I couldn't get things out of my mind and I didn't know what I was going to do, but I wasn't going home. I, I didn't, I didn't really have a plan. And one of my friends called, um, Bobby is, uh, him and I went to the very first fire Academy together. He's a co-captain at 42s and he's like, Hey, what are you doing? And I go, I have no idea. I'm just driving. And he goes, do not go home. And I go, why something going on in my house? And he goes, no, your guys are concerned about you. They're worried. They came to me and said, you are not yourself and I need you to go to the doctor. And for my first instinct was like, I'm not going to the fucking doctor, <laughs> you know? Um, but we talked for a minute. I pulled over, I started to cry. Um, and so I, I just drove myself to my primary care doctor, walked in, they didn't have an appointment for me. So I said, I'll just sit here until I see him. Um, and so, and so he wrote me off work at that point in time. And so, um, and that's kind of James, that's kind of like looking back is like really when they talk about your bucket finally is full, that incident finally pushed me over the edge. Um, and it, it was, it's such a hard feeling to describe like if you like this, like the whole world is bearing down on you you can't see straight. You can't breathe because it hurts. Um, it's dark everywhere except for right where you're looking. Um, and the only, and then the sleep, not being able to sleep. It was, it was a pretty rough go for a little bit there and um, for actually quite a while. And um, about um, 17 days into my doctor writing off actually it was about 15 days wrote me off work. I get a phone call from risk management and they said, they're not going to accept my case because my doctor that wrote me off is not a licensed psychologist. And so I'd been seeing a licensed psychologist. Um, and so she wrote a letter to risk management and because of some reason they did not accept her request. And so they, they requested um, me to do a QME. And so, but, but the, the thing that, that shook me was that I wasn't gonna get paid and that they were not recognizing that what had just happened was a significant incident to cause some sort of post-traumatic stress. 
And that to me was so much pressure and stress. That almost was more than the actual incident itself. The Because now I have, how am I going to feed my family? How am I going to pay my medical bills because they stopped paying my medical insurance because I was now on unauthorized pay without leave and my medical insurance. And, um, and there's really, I was at the, I was at the hands of the city requesting a QME, which mind you, this was, this was in early November and the QME wasn't scheduled until December 17th. So that's a long, that's a month away of kind of spinning, if you know what I mean, in, in limbo. And, um, and that was hell. Um, I got so low. Um, I, st- I was on a couple different anti-inflammatory or antidepressants. I was taking Zoloft, Trazodone. Um, I was taking some uh, Xanax and Ambien to sleep. Um, and I started taking those and consuming quite a bit of those uh, medications. Um, and I, and I, I just wanted to turn the mach- I just wanted to turn it off. That's the only thing I could start processing is I just wanted to shut my brain off. And I hadn't slept for several weeks. Um, and so uh, I decided the only way to really turn it off was to uh, end my life. And I, I thought I was such a burden on everybody. I felt like I was a burden on everybody. Um, I was a burden on anybody that came around me. I was sucking them into my misery. But I was unaware that I was pulling everybody in and drowning everybody with my misery. But I was aware that I was causing a lot of people emotional pain and distress. And I couldn't sleep. And so uh, I overdosed on... um, medications uh i took the rest of all my uh zoloft my trazodone because the trazodone helped me sleep um took a handful probably 12 xanax and then the rest of whatever however many ambien um thinking that those medications would would kill me they just put me to sleep and it'd be over with um and about 30 hours later or so i woke up Um, my wife said i had woken up once before during that in that time, but I don't remember. And when I woke up, the, my first initial feeling was anger. Uh, why am I still alive? And all the, the emotions came flooding back in. And, and this cycle repeated itself. Um, and then in, uh, a week later, I tried to commit suicide, um, shooting myself in the head with uh, my nine millimeter. And as I was getting ready to pull the trigger, my phone vibrated, and it was my, um, it was the emoji of my oldest daughter sitting there vibrating on my thighs. I have a nine millimeter shoved in my mouth, and um, I put the weapon down. Uh, uh, and then I just sat there and cried mainly for guilt. And uh, at that moment, I knew that that wasn't the answer. And that's when I really started digging into my 
survival story or my healing um, and moving on from, from then. And that, that's that, at that day is when I really took an oath that I was going to do, excuse me, everything in my power to get well, that I would never quit because I had four other lives that depended on it. My three daughters and my wife. And, uh, and, and that, and that really is where I began my journey into my behavior, into my own mental health and sanity, really. <laughs> well, we, we hear this a lot, you know, when, when people, um, you know, get to that point. And again, firstly, before I, I carry on, thank you for you know, telling the story, because I know how hard it must be. And, but people need to hear this, you know, they need to hear the lead up. But one thing I hear over and over again, I don't know if I asked you this last time, um, is, that when they get to that point, they feel that they're a burden to their family. People always talk about, you know, suicide being cowardly. But the more stories I hear from people that have been right there, or even, you know, pulled the trigger or jumped off the bridge who survived, it's always that I was a burden. So it was a selfless act. It was just the brain was completely distorting the way that they thought. So where yeah. where were you at that point where you decided to take the pills? That that that's that that is right on the money. Um, I was in so much pain that I truly believed that I was causing everybody else around me as much pain as I was in. And I really thought I would truly believed that by taking my own life, that pain would go away for them. I truly believed it and that's and that's what I felt. Knowing now and talking about it with my family, talking about it with my therapist and other people who have been in the shoes that I have been in. <clears throat> um knowing now and 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 you know what James throughout my career I've been at the other end of several on calls where people had killed themselves and watching the family get the news or mourn or um, a handful of times I've actually physically cut someone down from a noose myself. But I, those thoughts of their feelings and emotions never once entered into my, what I realized my, my sick brain and injured, injured brain at that time. Yeah. Well, exactly. And the analogy that I you know, use myself is when we're in a good place and we're on top of a tall building. Let's say you're on the aerial, you know, you're not skipping and jumping off the top. You got the little pucker factor and you're super careful because you know you might fall to your death. So when I tell people, when you go to a skyscraper, stand on the top, go to the roof, you know, a, a healthy person is not, not if you're in crisis. You feel in anywhere, you feel that invisible hand pushing you the fuck away from the edge because it's dangerous, you know? And the way it seems is that when people are at this point in crisis, that hand has gone from your front to your back, you know? And it's completely reversed the way that you're thinking. And you think about our, like, basal biology is to thrive, is to reproduce, is to stay alive, even with this virus. 
Like viruses don't want us to die. They want to use us like, you know, leeches and then carry on after they've multiplied. So the whole point of most, you know, things on planet Earth is to, to stay alive. So people need to understand that suicide, you know, as you said, our, the brain is, is tricked. It's completely, you know, broken to the point where the, the polarization is reversed. The, the, the the drive to survive is turned into the drive to to take one's own life. Yes, yeah, you're you're right on there, and that and 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 that was hard for me. The guilt of that, knowing that I after I was able to start thinking clearly, a lot of guilt set in on how close I really was of really changing in a negative way my family's projection trajectory for the rest of their lives um and that was a hard pill to swallow that that was uh hold on my phone is quacking you need to get that uh, duck out of your room i got it <laughs> shoot him off he's off <laughs> you know that was a really really tough um that was really hard. And I think just until recently, um, I was able to uh, put that guilt aside and forgive myself. Um, and, and, that's, and that leads into a whole other conversation on the things that happened in the past before this event, being able to let them go and forgive yourself and forgive others. And, and the journey from that October day until I am now until, uh, you know, until now, until where I am now is completely different. I, I actually think I'm a completely different person because I never really truly found my true self. I don't think I ever was my true self up until a month ago until I went through saw um, I, I put on a good facade and a good show when I needed to um, most of my life uh, survival mechanisms that I developed as a child uh, things like that but I don't really think I truly understood who I was and what I really wanted out of life until I went through saw yeah well and I, it's funny because between when we sat down and this conversation out the blue i forget what it is and it's a spirit but i reached out to jake oh i wanted to send him a book that's right one of my books because i knew that again that might be a tool that might be an aha moment for someone that that gets to that point so i'm like you know i want to send him a copy and see if it's something he would think would be a you know a resource for you guys um but you know that he hands down was the first person when he came on the show a few years ago now i think it was three years um was the the one i attribute to opening my eyes to the power of childhood trauma and then now you know here i am 400 episodes deep and i would say honestly i i want to guess it's about a third of my guests had you know significant childhood trauma some had you know what some might deem more moderate or mild but still definitely affected them and took them to a dark place but we're talking about physical abuse, sexual abuse, you know, around, uh, you know, horrendous drug use, murder, alcoholism, um, and, you know, beating themselves, watching their, their, their mother beaten, um, 
easily a third, if not more. So our professions, the military, police, fire, you know, corrections, I mean, all these these professions where in theory we're the protector, it really does draw people that have had this kind of past. So if people are listening and they're in, you know, some sort of counseling and that's not being discussed, then, you know, like as you know, as you said with saw, that saw is somewhere where they focus on that, and we have to start looking at that. We can't think about PTSD as oh, Jarrah was on that house fire, where we lost that kids. No, Jarrah was on that house fire, lost the kids. That was the final straw that broke him. But it was the shit he brought into the profession that had already set him up for failure. Uh, that is a hundred percent right. And the interesting thing that um, that I discovered through my saw journey or saw experience, because it was definitely an experience. Um, like over the last three years, James, I have been to six counselors, um, two of which I actually got some therapy out of. Um, and I'm grateful. But then I always left like, okay, I have this now in my pocket. What else? I'm still not feeling healthy. Um, I did the cognitive behavioral therapy, which was really, really helpful for me. Um, to learn how to not distort the information that I'm bringing in, but to be able to process it like a healthy human being would be able to process. Um, and that's still a struggle that I have on a daily basis, but I have the processes down that I can put that into play. Um, the EMDR was really good um, for that particular incident. If I went back and had to do EMDR for every traumatic thing I've experienced in my life, I'd be a million years old by the time we finished it, you know, but it was healthy. It was good. Um, my first counselor who talked me out of the closet, literally, I'm not bullshitting here. I was in my closet with the door wall locker at work. I call it the closet, but it's literally the wall locker at work who talked to me out to um, get outside and get some fresh air. Um, she was really good and a really great communicator and really helped me understand the trauma that I've put my family through, which sent me on a whole different journey. Um, but uh, I had been off and on well through these three years trying to find, and every time I'd latch onto a different therapy, it'd make me feel good for a little while. But then after I would have this tremendous depression and this emotional dump, um, but I still, I stayed focused on not doing any destructive behaviors. I sold my motorcycles, um, sold doom buggy, sold everything that I was using as a, as a crutch or as a internal drugstore dump, you know, adrenaline, endorphins, dopamine, all that stuff. Um, and I really started searching for, um, but, uh, in late summer with this COVID thing and, bunch of other stuff and my wife's brother passing. Um, I started getting into a, a pretty, pretty heavy depression again. And, um, I was up and down emotional roller coaster, and, um, I applied for saw. Um, one of my friends had Maddie, as we shared and earlier, he had introduced me to saw. And then I talked to another friend, Jeff Keimer, who had been through saw several years ago. And he seemed to have been doing really well since then. And I went ahead and uh, I knew 
I had an idea a little bit about what's a, a little idea of what saw was, but I really was just going out on a whim. I'm like trying, I'm looking for anything that will help me understand why I feel this way, why I do what I do and how can I fix myself? Because I realized that it's not anybody going to fix me. It's I've got to do something and I just haven't found it yet. Um, and like I had vowed three years before that I was never going to stop looking for that. And so um, just out of the blue, <laughs> out of the blue one day, I got online, read the saw website, listened to the videos and said, fuck it, I'm going to apply and um, pick my roster day. Um, and uh, the day that I, uh, Larry Turner, who is a saw alumni, um, he's a roster. He, he called me to do my rostering call. That's what they do. They call you and interview you to see if, if you're ready for the program or if you qualify, whatever. Um, and I was, I was having suicidal feelings and thoughts knowing that I wasn't going to go through with it, but, but those feelings came back really hard and heavy. Um, and after a while they wear on you. Um, and, and when I got that call, um, Uh, he invited me uh, to attend SAW and there wasn't any class open. A, a cohort is what they call it. Uh, there wasn't a cohort available until next March. And I was like, in my mind, I'm sitting there talking to him going, I don't know if I can hang on that long. I was really struggling. Um, and and right as we're interesting is right as we're, this is no bullshit. We're sitting there having this conversation and he's like, Hey, I just got an email from Jake Haggerty and he opened it up and he says, we have a spot available for November 15th. Are you available to go? I didn't even look at my calendar. I just said, yes. And that was like three weeks. It, it was a little less than three weeks. Uh, it was like two and a half weeks. And so he's like, okay, good. We're rostering you. Bum, bum. These are all the things you need to do. They sent me this reading list. It was like unreal, you know, and I'm not a good reader anyway. I got dyslexia, but I was like, fuck it. I'm going to do it. I don't care how I going to read these. I'm going to get through the material. I'm going to do the work. Um, and then, uh, and then I went to saw. Beautiful. Well, I mean, so what was what was a great dynamic was when you and I sat down with Matty. If my memory serves me right, we sat down on a Friday and you went on a Sunday. Is that right? I mean, it was literally two days after, I think. Yes, it, it was two days after. Beautiful. So walk me through. I mean, again, there's obviously it's not secrecy, but there are traditions and, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, I don't even know what the right word is, but there there are elements of SOAR that obviously you encounter once you're in SOAR. So I'm not expecting you to kind of detail all the kind of things, but sure. kind of walk me through your experience on, on the areas that, that you you know are able to discuss and the impact that that had on you once you left the, uh, the facility. So um, when we talked, I was uh, having – when we sat down with Maddie – I was excited, but I was having some underlying anxiety. I really hadn't pinpointed it yet, but I, I was having some anxiety. Um, and then that Saturday, uh, 
it was it was definitely um definitely hitting hard like anxiety and and i'm pretty i'm, I'm pretty aware of what's happening in my body um after going through all this and being able to identify triggers and anxieties and depression and all that stuff how i feel it um and you know i i instead of going out when i get anxiety or depressed or anything in prior life jared's life i would go do something destructive um destructive behavior uh, alcohol drugs sex whatever pornography things that would like take my mind off what was happening put it somewhere else for a moment um just to have that release I, I resorted to uh, destruction, destructing, but it wasn't anything that didn't need to be done. My neighbor needed two fence posts replaced that really didn't need to replace, but he asked me to do it. So I just went to town and, and got busy. Um, and my wife came outside and she's like, is everything okay? And I'm like, no. And she's like, well, obviously it's not because you're tearing down the fence the day before you're going to saw and we have dogs. <laughs> and we have dogs. <laughs> And I go, I, I just have this really, really heavy anxiety right now. And I, I haven't been able to identify like where it's coming from or what's happening. And I got pretty emotional. And so I went, we finished the fence and uh, I reached out to Maddie and I says, Maddie, I am like totally having second thoughts. I'm, I think my, I know where my anxiety is coming from. And he's like, dude, that's standard because you know what's coming, you know, you, you know, it's going to be a heavy week. You know, you're going there to do some uncomfortable things. And he's, you know, and so the last time I talked to him uh, before I went to saw was uh, just lean in. And that, that resonated with me throughout all of saw. Um, the first exercise we did in there um, was two lies and a truth. And I, I won't go into the detail, but I sat there staring at my paper for about five minutes and I, or two truths and a lie. I think that's what it's called. And so I sat there looking at my paper and the only voice I could hear in my head was Maddie saying, lean in, lean in. And I was staring at my hand. So I just leaned in. I probably wrote the two heaviest truths that I had been carrying on my soul, I wrote them down on that paper. And that, that began my journey into saw. And I, I just leaned in the whole uh, four days we were there. Um, the spirituality, uh, not religious aspect, but, you know, um, tapping into your spirit, your soul or whatever, um, and unpacking things and 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 it was completely the interesting thing is like i went there thinking i'm going to talk about like fire stuff and war stuff and all this stuff but within the first hour we went right into the childhood trauma there was no like tiptoeing around it or walking softly it was this is where we're going guys and and you better you better go deep on this because you'll never get another opportunity like you have right now to work through this stuff. And, and that's where we went. We, we went, we did some incredible exercises. Um, I feel like I got a PhD crash course in 
psychology, especially child psychology, and then as it turns into adult uh, psychology, um, learned some stuff that just was really, really mind-blowing and things that were triggering to me. Um, we identified those, and, and, and it was great. I was there with 11 other guys searching for the same thing I was looking for, um, and we did some really cool rituals that were healing and helped unpack a lot of stuff. And the, the, the biggest thing that I, that I can take that I think I took away from saw was, uh, that, that everything's going to be okay. As long as you continue to put the work in, um, and we call it bucket work, uh, saw alumni. They say it saw, we talk funny, you know, like saw some, uh, saw goggles, uh, things like that. Um, and the, the, the men that led us through this four days were kind, um, honest, loving, um, like ways that I had never had experience from the men that were in my life. Um, and they showed me that that's okay to like love another human just because they're human. That was really powerful. Um, and so, uh, I really feel like I had a, uh, a rebirth, if you might say, uh, in Saw, where I was able to um, get in touch with my true self, um, realize that uh, that one of the qualities that I have uh, is uh, empathy, that, that I didn't have to learn it. It just flowed naturally through those four days. Um, and it was pointed out to me at the times that I was showing that to other men that were there. Um, so that I can, so that I can recognize that 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 wasn't a feeling of weakness, but being having empathy for someone, or being vulnerable for them, or or holding space or loving them was acceptable, um, and and that <laughs> and that's you know the meditation. Um, which is no secret, uh, the meditation is a truly a helpful, uh, helpful thing. And we did a lot of that there and practiced it a lot so that we could go home and meditate. Um, and I've been pretty consistent at doing that on a daily basis. So it was a lot, James, it was a lot. Um, and it was kind of interesting because they give you all this information in an email and everything that we did. And then it's up to us on how we create a plan going forward. Does, does that kind of make sense? Like they didn't say, Hey, this is what you need to do. This is here. You do right. It's like, Hey guys, here's this stuff. You've learned it. You felt it. You've lived it for four days. Now take what you want and leave the rest behind. Teach a man the fish. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, and there's still so much work to do, but it, it but like, I feel so free if that makes any sense at all. 
Like I, I, you know, I, I, I'm still tapping into feeling what true joy feels like. And I feel like I can go deeper with that, but I'm feeling it. Um, I've had some down days. I'm not going to lie that saw cured everything. Um, but it gave me the tools so that I can pull myself out of those down days. Um, and I, I've put those to the test and they work. Well, Jared, how old are you now? I'm 50 years old. Okay. So you were abused at eight years old. So, you know, from eight to 12. So you're basically carrying around 40 years worth of, of trauma. So yeah. that's the thing. So, you know, in, in those few short days, was it four, four or five days? It was, it was like three and a half, really. Okay. Four, four days. Yeah. So, you know, obviously you've got four decades worth of stuff to unpack, but to have, have that, you know, that much of an epiphany in that time is so powerful. And it kind of reminds me of one of my, one of my friends, Chad, who came on the show a couple of times and he's a, a fireman here in our area. And same thing, like he was abused sexually as a child. And it, you know, it took him, thank God. I mean, he went into, into counseling on his third try and he, he told me, and I'll write about this in the books, one of the chapters, even though it's a different name in there. But, um, yeah, I know the chapter that, that really resonated with me, that chapter 10. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and that's just it. I mean, he, it was just his story. I told his story and obviously put some lessons learned that I've got from all these people on the show at the end. But what he said to me was so powerful. He's like, I was finally, cause luckily he did have this, this, this moment in this last time. I was yeah. finally able to forgive myself. And, and the, for most people on the outside looking in that haven't, had a horrific childhood like you know you and he had you'd yeah. be like well surely you'd know that you were a victim but again i hear this over and over again these people that were abused you know whether it's you know wives or, or children they blame themselves and there's that guilt and it seems like you're finally able to shed that horrendous facade you know that that fallacy that you've been believing in that that you were responsible for your own sexual abuse right and, and, you know, James, it wasn't just the sexual abuse, but I was, you know, physically abused by my father for, you know, 12 years of, uh, you know, severe beatings and starvation. And, you know, like I said, I felt like a prisoner, you know, months at a time in my 10 by 10 room. Um, but but I, I wanted to revisit this after Saw because this is what I'm really struggling with. Uh, I'm not struggling with it, but I'm um, I'm struggling with it in a good way, like how to do it. Um, and that's forgiveness of others, because being angry and and upset and holding that anger and hatred inside for so many years is so destructful to yourself. And and I have been really working on forgiving my parents, forgiving the people that sexually assaulted me. Um, like not just saying I forgive you, but really doing the hard soul work to be able to set myself free of that. Uh, and I struggle with it, but, but I'm getting there. Um, and, and then I, and then you have to remember that maybe that's what they knew because that happened to them. You know, knowing now that my stepfather came from a really, really strict home where there where they were beatings and things like that. And then he went to Vietnam 
I could, you know, now looking at it from a different vantage point, I was like, they didn't know any better. They were just doing what I have been doing. Does that make sense? Like, No, it does. And then that's what I see with us now. Like, I, f- I feel like this conversation, your own personal journey, your own personal experience is, is a, is a, you know, incredibly powerful example of this. But as, as an entire generation, we need to be the buck stops here generation because you see this. It's cyclical, you know, and I don't know whether this, um, you know, this, this came from, let's say maybe post World War II. Was a lot of abuse, you know, grown from that? Was it World War One? Was it the War of Independence? Was it, you know, the English, um, American War? Was it the, I mean, you go back and back and back, but, you know, trauma breeds trauma, hurt people, hurt people. But that's, that's a great thing to recognize, but it's not a great thing to accept. You know, and we have to be the generation that says enough is enough. We have to be the fathers that raise kind and compassionate kids. We have to be the men and women that have the courage to look inside and, and identify what in us is broken. You know, it's a, it's a harsh word, but it's true. What in us is broken? Where is our wiring broken where we, have to do exactly what you had the courage to do and look in a fucking mirror and say, this is who I am. This is what happened. I can do better. Whether you've had a childhood or trauma or whether you're just a bit of a shit bag at work, whatever it is, you know, we can all be better. Yeah. And, and you know, you're exactly right. And that's, that's really, my wife sent me this caption. I have it on my phone and it says, it takes an incredibly strong and vulnerable person to recognize the generations of trauma and to put the work in so that it ends. And when she said, uh, excuse me, I, so I get emotional sometimes. It's because I'm so freaking happy now. Well, don't you apologize know? for your emotions, mate. Embrace yeah. them, honestly. You're right. It, it, it's just, I shouldn't apologize for it. It's just, you know, the emotions get balled up inside and, and my way of expressing it is through tears. Some are good, some are bad. These are good. Um, and it, and you know, and I, when I read that, I'm like, it stops here with me. Um, I'm, I've been very vigilant of never hitting my children, um, keeping them protected from predators, uh, like hyper vigilance with them. Um, and now I know where that comes from and I'm able to recognize it. Um, I have been very stern with them and I'm working on that, um, being more open and listening to them because they are people. They're just littler than me, you know, and they have thoughts and feelings and emotions and needs and wants. And it's my job as a father to listen to that and to help them make decisions for themselves. And, and just having that understanding and that clarity it's like sometimes I think it's like mind blowing. Like everybody needs that, you know. No, exactly. I mean, you know, the, this sounds so cheesy, but you know, when people say all we need is love, I mean, that's the problem. Is it you? I mean, how how tall are you? Uh, six foot. Yeah. So, and you're a big guy. I mean, I mean that in a, in a in a muscular way. And you're a firefighter, and you're a veteran. And here we are having this conversation where you were finally able to acknowledge that there was more than just a fucking uniform hanging off your shoulders. And even though what, what you did in the military and what we both have done in, in, in the fire service is admirable, 
you know, I mean, I'm, I'm so fucking proud to have worn the badge that I did and, and run the calls that I did. It doesn't define who we are and it doesn't trump the shit that we've been through. And I right. think that one of the most toxic things that you and I have been raised, because we're, you know, I'm, I'm just a very, very few years younger than you, is that we were raised on this fucking bullshit facade that a man doesn't cry. A man goes running towards the bullets. A man, you know, sees horrible shit and then goes, goes back and, you know, cracks open a beer and it doesn't even affect him. No, that's Hollywood. And Hollywood is portrayed by, you know, some incredible veterans, but usually the bullshit facade ones are people that never fucking served in their life. Right. And, and we were brought, and it's not just the movies, it's, it's books, it's comic books, it's, you know, it's, it's all the, the input that we got, but we were raised on a facade that sadly after the real, you know, her- heroism that came out of World War Two and, and the poor men and women that went to Korea and, and Vietnam that weren't heralded as heroes when they came back, you know, meanwhile, people were making movies that were complete bullshit on what a man or a woman should be. And so I feel like in 2020, we're the generation that has to say, all right, control, alt, delete the last 60 years because it was kind of bullshit. <laughs> you know, here's what a man is. Here's what a woman is. The reason the yin yang exists is because you have a soft and a hard and they exist in you know what is a man or a woman and you the reason that a, a soldier or a policeman or a firefighter or a police officer excuse me or a firefighter or a medic entered in that profession is they they did it out of love they want to help people but you can't be a giant pussy if you're going to do that job either you know so you've got to have the soft and you've got to have the hard but if you negate or ignore the soft part you right. end up being a two-dimensional facade of what an actual man or woman is. I agree 100%. You, you can't, you know, there's a time and a place like on scene of a, of an emergency call is not the time to have a, a to be soft. Sometimes you just got to be hard. You got to do the hard things. You got to put your head down. You got to, you got to do what you can do to help others survive. But we need to realize that, we just don't go back to the station, yuck it up, go home, crack a beer, like you said. It's like, okay, recognize that that happened. Now let's process it healthfully. You know, let, let's get it out. Let's let's work through it. Let's talk about it. Um, one of the things I, I always say to the guys when we start talking at the station is one of the biggest downfalls of my uh, generation of firefighters, we have individualized rooms. Everybody can get on their phone and go hide in the room. Um, you know, some crews don't even eat dinner together anymore. And, and it's just like that. That's the time where we heal when we come back from calls. That's the time when we talk. That's the time when we, you know, at the dinner table, sitting around the dormitory, you know, things like that. And I'm 100% on board on having that. You know, they talk about well-rounded firefighter. Well, that well-rounded firefighter is vulnerable, um, compassionate, uh, has empathy, but yet also has uh, mental strength, physical strength, um, the ability to do the hard things as well. Absolutely. Yeah, and there's a lot of facades. I mean, just just to I use this example quite a bit, but another facade is that a real firefighter wears a leather helmet covered in soot. <laughs> no. That's, that's I- a- that is a big facade. Yeah. I mean, the reality is, 
you know, and, and people hate hearing this, but I love to shove truths down people's throats. It's the equivalent to wearing a tin helmet in the SEAL team. I'm sorry, but we have evolved. They're a better helmet. The ones that you guys had, I had in Anaheim, I much preferred to the heavy ass one that I had on the East Coast. You know, but the, you know, the, the ones that a lot of the firefighters use in Europe, and I just finished watching the documentary on Notre Dame, for example. There's some freaking badass firefighters in Europe, but there's a group of firefighters that just guffaw every time they see that helmet. Oh, fucking, you know, and meanwhile, they're climbing, you know, a a multi-story complex with a Pompeii ladder. I think that's pretty fucking heroic, personally. And if yeah. they have a shiny helmet, they keep clean, meaning they remove carcinogens and they're being fucking badasses wearing it. To me, that's much more important than having a salty, quote unquote, leather helmet. And it's the same thing with mental health. It's the same thing with so many areas. Are you doing it because you think it's cool or you're buying into a facade or are you truly doing it to be the best version of what you are? A resilient effective firefighter is someone who owns their trauma, owns their, you know, whatever it is, and grows from it and becomes more resilient, post-traumatic growth. Yeah. So are you gonna are you gonna progress or are you gonna cling on to a facade because it's quote unquote tradition, which by the way is complete bullshit. Brotherhood yeah. and sisterhood is tradition, not a fucking helmet. Right. Yeah. I, I stopped wearing that leather helmet uh when I got promoted captain and the only thing that, that leather helmet has given me is exposure to carcinogens and two two degenerative discs in my neck. Yeah, that's so heavy that's as only, shit. <laughs> the only thing that that leather helmet ever gave me. <laughs> yeah, and like I said, I've 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 worn the you know I went back. I regressed to that helmet. It's what we had when I came back to the East Coast. I love the one I had in Anaheim. I still got it to this day, and I wear it when I go do training. Even though I'm retired, I'll still go do training and stuff. Um, you know, but again, I think the, the next step is, is that helmet, you know, and what does everyone wear on a tech team? They're not wearing their fucking leather helmet. I'll tell you that for sure. You know, so there's a reason for that. There's a reason why on Wildland, they're not walking around with leather helmets, you know, because they, they were fantastic when they first came out and we have, we have, you know, we've gone to space. Things have changed, you know, but, um, but anyway, but back to, back to the, to the mental health side. So, um, you know, what were some of the things that you did with the toolbox that you were given at Save a Warrior for your own personal, you know, journey, not just out, but your own personal growth journey from here on in? Yes. Um, so before Saw, I did put a few tools in my toolbox and one was sleep. Um, that has been tremendous uh, over the last couple. I think I've had my I think the last six months I've really slept well. I have a discovered that I have sleep apnea, had it for ever, got the sleep machine, even though it's weird sometimes, but now I can't sleep without it. That so getting a hold of my sleep has been probably like the number one tool. And we talked about that at Saw also. I um, mean you talk about it in your book uh repeatedly, repetitively about the sleep. Um the other things that I have developed from Saw. Um, one is um, meditation. Um, I had meditated before doing a breathing technique and stuff, mostly to help me sleep. Um, but to actually have a practice of meditation that you do in the morning and in the evening, um, that that really, honestly, has really helped me um, just hold space for myself. You know, we talk about holding space for others or being there for others. Sometimes you have to hold space for yourself, and that meditation has been key. 
um, the reading list that they have um, uh, given us. I've already chunked out two books since Saw. I'm on a third right now. I'm on um, uh, The Body Keeps a Score, which is uh, I'm like 40 pages in, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, this thing's so heavy already. And um, so the, keeping up on good, healthy reading, um, cutting out uh, Internet use, which was really awesome because it saw we had no phones and no outside connection. So it was a really good time to break that um, uh, unhealthy internet use. If you guys understand what I'm saying there, um, then, uh, my saw notes has been great to go back and reflect. Um, and then also the community that the alumni page on Facebook, the, the ability to, share my thoughts, feelings, emotions on paper or on electronic, knowing that the only people that are going to read them are a saw alumni who have been in that seat that I have sat in and then to get their feedback or their, Hey man, I feel you. I'm here. <clears throat> um, that support. And then my 11 saw brothers from my cohort, I was cohort, uh, one, one, seven and uh, the 11 guys that I went through that program with, they're there for me. Um, and like I sent out a text last yesterday saying that, Hey guys, haven't heard from you guys for a while. I know that phone weighs 400 pounds. Um, but I guarantee you, if you need to talk, you have 11 phone numbers. And if you try them all, you'll eventually get one person to answer, you know? So the support system, um, and, and just having just really James having an understanding of what happened right? To be able to let go of the story that I kept telling myself what happened and, and to be able to really process and understand how my psychology was developed to get me to where I could survive to where I was at prior to saw. And now looking at it from a different angle, just the enlightenment has really been like, those have been like the key things that I took from saw now with the uh, community I mean obviously one of the books that Jake uh, puts on the reading list is tribe and I'm actually getting Sebastian back on the show he's he's writing a new book which is you know a follow-up to tribe which I can't wait to hear about um but uh that's so important and where I hear a lot of programs fail is there are they they you know this was reported over and over again when I was there it was great but once I left I was back on my own again. I was back in that space that caused me the issues before. And what right. I hear so positively about, actually about AA, you know, I hear this, you know, with the meetings there. And then also obviously with Saw is that community stays, has grown. You become a shepherd. I mean, all, all these progressions where you, you find that tribe, but then you keep that tribe. You don't leave the tribe the moment the, you know, the, 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 um, yeah, immersion or, or the retreat is done. Right. And, and you know that's thank you for bringing that up because um, there's you know ACA a program uh, adult children's of alcoholics and dysfunctional families is one of the programs that they encourage folks that have uh, high ACEs scores which are um, the ACEs is a, a test on how how severe your childhood trauma was kind of thing or to identify your childhood trauma um, and so they hold those support group meetings uh, on Zoom. 
they have people that are alumni from SAW that run those meetings every day of the week, sometimes a couple of days. So at any time, like tonight, I tonight at seven o'clock, um, the one that I go to, I'll get back on the computer and do a Zoom call um, with people all over the country that I've gotten to know just by sitting in front of a computer and, and listening and hearing their struggles and their successes. Um, and that's at a fingertip. I can have that access. Um, and it's not shunned or shamed upon, you know, it's, it's welcomed. And, and that's the community that tribe is my next book, uh, that I'm going to read actually, after I get through this, this long, <laughs> the four <laughs> pages of the body keeps a score. Um, and also, I just wanted you to know that uh, I bought 10 more copies of your book and gave them to every one of my crew members at the station. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, thank you. Thank you. And, I, yeah. I'm, and I'm honored that someone with dyslexia powered their way through my book, too. So thank you. <laughs> short. It's like 120 pages, right? Exactly. It's pretty firefighter friendly. <laughs> and it was a good read, too. Like I said, there were several chapters that really stuck out to me. Um, chapter 10, for sure. That was kind of like a realization for me that... Um, that things could get, that things can and will get better. Because <clears throat> um, I read your book pre-saw, and so um, it was good. And one of my crew members has already powered through it, and I only gave it to him like three, two shifts ago. Beautiful. Yeah, I've had that. Yeah, people that have said, "Oh, I've got some books to read first, and then they end up cracking it, and then they they work through it because it is basically a bunch of short stories is, is really what it boils down to. So I think for our sleep deprived, you know, brothers and sisters, it, it is an easy read because I know I struggled to read when I was on shift. I was just so tired all the time. Right. Yeah. And, and, and it's nice. Uh, I'll tell you too, sleeping is so, I don't think, I don't think the younger generation firefighter really realizes how important sleep is until they get my age and they don't get it. And they're woken up due to memories or, uh, just sometimes you just wake up for no reason at all because you just expect that there would have been a call, you know, at that time. And I think, I think, you, you know, you nailed something right on the head. And I know people have been talking about it for just a little bit is, um, you know, why are we seeing increased rates of cancer? Why do we have increased rates of other illnesses, uh, especially within firefighters? And I think, and shift workers, I think, I think, you know, some, I think a lot of it is carcinogens, but I think a lot of it has to do with our altered sleep. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's just it. You know, the, the big question is why, and I say this example all the time, why is a person bagging your groceries max out at 40 hours a week? And yeah. the person that's doing, you know, pulls your kid out of a house fire and is working a pediatric code working 56 hours a week. It's just an absolute yeah. insanity. Exactly. Hey, James, I, I wanted to... Uh, one more thing that I really learned at saw that actually really like brought a ton of light. And we mentioned it a little bit before about people with past trauma migrate to uh, public safety. Um, <clears throat> we discussed it saw, and I've read it in uh, another book that, that if you pull firefighters and military um, people, uh, on the development of post-traumatic stress or moral injury, um, that about 25% is susceptible to that. That's about the average. You know, if you take 100 firefighters, 25 of them will develop some kind of post-traumatic stress. Same with military. But af of those 25%, almost all of that percentage will have had childhood trauma. And, and that is kind of, that was a big eye-opener for me. 
that that it was almost like if I would have been able to stay healthy mentally when I was younger, even if I had that trauma, like if I was aware of that going into the fire service and I practiced good mental health, I practiced sleep, um, I had strong activities outside. Uh, I think a lot of that could have been prevented if I was aware of that and not to deter people with childhood trauma from public safety, but just to educate them. That's part we're missing is like, the education, like you're going to, you know, just, just be aware. The thing that I talk about a lot, and I think I touched on it in the book too, is I know having been through four departments and I, you know, for people listen to a lot of episodes, I apologize because I'm repeating myself again, but this is one of the dead horses I'm flogging. Um, I do polygraphs. And then I do psych tests. You know, I lie my way through a polygraph. Yeah, no, I was I was too busy studying the Bible and being an altar boy to ever do anything bad until I became the fireman, um, <laughs> which is bullshit. Um, but, uh, you know, and then the other side is psych tests. Those crazy thousands and thousands of bubble, you know, questions that try and trick you into saying that, you know, you are attracted to kids or you steal or whatever it is. My thing is, that's what a background check's for. You know, if you're on some sexual predator list, you're not going to be a fireman. You know, if you've been dealing drugs, you're not going to be a fireman. But aside from that, if you've made a minor mistake or, you know, somehow eluded the law, <laughs> like most of us, um, you know, the, you've got a clean enough sheet to, to walk through the door. So now it's not about covering your ass and checking a box saying, oh, but we did. No, how about you take that same budget that you're already spending and you put your probies, your recruits, when they're going through the academy and they're doing the push-ups and they're doing the calisthenics and they're, yeah, maybe they're more progressive and they're doing kettlebells and sandbags. And, but you also put them through X amount of sessions with a counselor. And you actually find a counselor that understands first responders. So firstly, they have a chance to offload that. And maybe it's a progressive counselor that in the first couple of sessions, immediately like they do a saw, goes straight to the heart and says, hey, Let's start at the beginning. Let's talk about your early childhood so that by the time you get out of the academy or off probation, you've had a chance to offload a lot of this before you start accumulating the horrendous shit that we see. But then you also have a go-to person so you're not playing the EAP Russian roulette like so many stories I hear, but you have someone to go to immediately before the load becomes you know, immense like so many sad stories that we hear. Oh, man, that's right on the head. I mean, we have a pretty strong uh, behavioral health program here in San Diego, but I would really like to see like like a trial study on that to see really what, what information we gather over, like study a, guy, study a group of guys coming in, do, do exactly what you said, and then follow them through their career, or at least the first part to see, to see how that affects them, to see if they're more... Uh, ready to go to some to go talk to someone when something's bothered them or you know to help break the stigma that it's perfectly acceptable to go talk to someone you know um absolutely uh that one of the things i was able to do at the last i speak at the fire academy wellness day we have here and the last day last uh, one that i was able to speak at um one of the things that i did talk to the guys and girls about was that if you've got trauma or you have things in the past that you've pushed down or shoved I says, I guarantee you at some point in your career, something's going to bother you. And I guarantee you that's going to be the route. And so if you have stuff right now, I'm not saying quit the fire academy or put it on hold. But I'm saying when you guys graduate and you're doing your thing, that you address that. 
that you seek out help for that, that you process it and be able to put it in its healthy place. Because trust me, it will come back to haunt you. And um, I got actually a couple comments on that after guys that said, thank you for sharing that. So Yeah, no, it's beautiful. And in the book, uh, I wrote about the, the back injury I had. And it's the same thing. That injury, which sucked, as you can tell from you know, the way the way it affected me, ended up being opening the door for solutions. And then that solution, which was foundation training, was a, was a big part of that, not only enabled my own growth and healing, but also obviously to, to teach a lot of other people, but I was stronger for it. And that's how we have to frame mental health. If you have a trauma, it's an injury. But if you focus it and address it, you become more resilient. Now you have a story. Now you have another way to relate to the patients that we that we treat. But if you don't treat it yourself, it's still an injury. It's a weakness instead of a strength. So take that weakness, address it, and turn it into a strength. Now you're more resilient than you ever would have been if you even hadn't had that trauma before. Yeah, you know that's exactly right. I actually feel at 50 years old. Um, I feel more resilient emotionally than I ever have in my life. And, and it feels good. It feels really good. Oh man, so, so good to hear. So I guess as a kind of closing part to this discussion, you've come out and saw, you know, you've obviously got this, this toolbox now, like you said, it's not, you know, uh, a magic pill. You've got, you know, it's even work to do. You, you've got a journey to travel with that now and, and a journey of self-discovery, a rabbit hole of your own. <laughs> yeah. What does what the future look like for you? What is it What is it that you want to do the next few years? Um, well, at 50 years old, I definitely want to finish my fire career healthy um, mentally uh, and physically. I'm working through some couple of physical ailments right now that I, I know I'll get through. Um, I want to my wife and I's 25th wedding anniversary is coming up in June. Um, and she has been such a rock for me, uh, or lighthouse, I would say, um, just always there for me. Um, not letting me pull her into my misery, but just there, just being there. Um, so going forward, I want to continue to celebrate my marriage with her, my three daughters, watching them grow, um, and develop and, and stuff. Those are all now like, priorities that I physically and mentally see happening. Um, I definitely want to continue uh, helping others. Like at speaking in the academy, I, I do run a support group um, for first responders and we're working on opening three more, one for, for uh, women first responders and others for first responder spouses. And my wife has taken lead on the spousal one um, in the San Diego area. And so I can see myself continuing down that road even after retirement. Um, because I, I feel it's so important that we, that we continue to break the stigma, um, that we continue to talk about it, to make it just as easy to talk about or openly acceptable to talk about as a sprained ankle or, um, you know, pneumonia or whatever, whatever ailment somebody has that they just freely tell you, we need to be able to have that same thing with our mental ailments, you know? Uh, and so hopefully I can be a part of that conversation going forward. Um, and that's kind of to answer your question. That's kind of what I see. I, I definitely uh, plan on surfing <laughs> till uh, my 
late years of my life. And, uh, but moving forward, James, I really feel uh, the future's bright. Um, I think we're just tapping into the awareness of behavioral health and, and where we go from there. It's, it's really what I'm looking forward to. Beautiful. And just, just one tangent to uh, the end to tack on. I've seen so many people come out of their own dark place and then when they're able to start, you know, when they're ready, when, when, when they feel like they're stable themselves, they're able to start helping others, which seems to happen so often when someone comes back from a successful, you know, retreat from, you know, save a warrior from, you know, from an addiction sense or whatever it is, but they truly have turned a corner. Now everyone comes out the shadows to find out how they did it because they're all hurting too, even though they all seem they were fine. Um, the healing element of that, of giving back, of altruism seems to be obviously incredible for the people they help, but very, very powerful for that person who's doing the helping too. Have you had a little glimmer of that yourself? Absolutely. Um, really, uh, service to others is the secret sauce. Um, it makes you feel better. It helps someone. Uh, it helps you heal yourself when you serve um, others. When you take your mind off what your problem is or what your ailment is and you help others in any any capacity. It doesn't have to be behavioral health. You could go serve food at the homeless line. You could do secret Santa. You can, you know, stop and help somebody with the flat tire, right? <laughs> you know that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, we did that when we were there together. We stopped and helped that guy put that tire on. Um, just, just service and and yes, um, and and I think it's because of the pain when you come back from a really really dark place where you really feel that there is no hope or no end, and you actually do the work to get back. You you do not want anybody to be in that position because it is so painful that your empathy takes over and you want to help that person find their way back, not do it for them, but help them recognize the tools, help them recognize their true self so that they can work themselves back to healthy uh, and happiness. And, and to be honest, I think to answer your question, that's exactly what I think is like happening to me or has happened to me. Beautiful. Well, and again, it goes back to what we said before. It's teach a man a fish. If you just give a man a woman a fish, then they just have a fish. You teach them a skill and you raise them up and you you enable them to forge their own path, then the next thing they can do is help someone else do exactly the same thing. Yep. Yeah. And um, I just encourage anyone that, you know, I'm available. Um, my... I'm on Facebook, Jared Chiselski, C-H-E-S-E-L-S-K-E. On Instagram, my handle is CheeseWizzle. That's <laughs> pretty funny, CheeseWizzle. Um, DM me, face, you know. Um, Instagram is probably better. I have a hard time navigating Facebook, but it's I'm there to Facebook help. Facebook sucks. <laughs> <laughs> terrible. <laughs> but I'm, I'm there, you know, I'm available. And... Uh, uh, sometimes when, when it's lost, like I said, just picking up that 400 pound phone to make that first phone call or to call a friend uh, or to call someone for help is, is really the hardest thing. That is probably the hardest thing because it's, you're admitting to yourself that you're lost and that you need help and, and your brain 
is accustomed to misery and and that's that 400 pound phone's pretty freaking heavy <laughs> yeah well i think what i've uh, you know, a common denominator from so many of these conversations as well is people want to help and i see that even you know in this polarizing time that we're at, at the moment there's a lot of people in the middle that's where all the sensible people live the dickheads are at the left and the right and everyone else in the middle is just trying to do their thing and they need to be led. And I don't mean that. I always say that sounds patronizing. I don't mean to sound patronizing. They just need a lighthouse. Like you said, your wife was. They just need somewhere to focus. But so many people do want to help. They just don't have the skills or the tools to recognize when their fellow man or woman is in trouble, you know? So by the people that are in trouble reaching out and then the rest of us being aware and looking out, looking, you know, being, being receptive to it, I think most people will be blown away by how many people do want to help. They just need to be given that chance. Oh, yeah, absolutely. People naturally want to help each other. It's ingrained in us. Um, it's just scary sometimes. you know. And, and, and the best tool when somebody reaches out to you is just to listen. Because when somebody is reaching out, Internally, they just want to be heard or seen or recognized. And just by recognizing someone, by listening to them, or just by being present with them can make a huge difference in their recovery and turnaround. Beautiful. Well, I think that's a perfect place to end this. So I want to say thank you again, mate. I mean, being... Being so vulnerable and courageous before Saw and telling your story and then sitting down again now and, uh, you know, letting us see inside your journey. And, you know, the, I mean, the Saver Warrior seems to be consistently over and over again. I just see Jake and, and those guys doing such incredible things. And so many of my friends now, have, uh, you know, alumnum, excuse me, alumni themselves. Yeah. Um, you know, and to see you joining that, that group is incredible. So thank you so much for, you know, coming on again and, being vulnerable yet again and, and hopefully helping a lot of people out there realize they're not alone. Awesome, James. Well, thanks again for, for asking the right questions and for being present for me. Um, it is really an honor to really actually uh, have conversation back and forth with you. Um, and, and I truly enjoy it. And I think that's kind of what we need to continuously do with, with everybody around us is just talk to them.